Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 39. Are we at 40 yet? Almost? Nah, in fact, 39 still. That's too bad. Well, um, it's been some time, three weeks or so since the last one. It is nice to be back on some kind of schedule uh, now that, you know, Mir is publishing Giganto Machia on a regular basis. Uh, the next issue came out uh, this past week, and we'll be back probably have a podcast for each of the releases. That's the plan anyway. So the new one came out, and while we were all hoping from the last podcast that, you know, Maybe the story would, would zoom out a little bit and show us a bigger picture of, of what's coming and what to expect from the scope of the story. We did not get that necessarily. We got a little more of the fight and we got a little bit of the context for the main character, uh, Delos and, uh, sort of a larger presence that's, uh, you know, ruling over this, you know, bug land. But, um, I, I have to say I, I did kind of walk away from this one a little bit. You know, I, I, I keep hoping for a little more. But I think I should probably lower my expectations in terms of the scope and just appreciate what I have before me, which is kind of like a fighting series set in yeah. a unique world. You know, that's what it's probably going to end up being. Yeah, I agree. quite clear at first what it was going to be, but yeah. There's you such can... a focus on – I'm sorry, Zil. Go ahead. No, no. You can you can go. I was going to say there's such a focus on fighting um, in the first – in the end of the first issue and the start of the second issue and – it started kind of comical to me, like, oh my god, they're still doing suplexes and shit. And then people on the forum started posting links to the actual moves. And, like, he's actually using these real-world wrestling moves, which I know shouldn't surprise me because Mira constantly pulls from real-world things. But it was just kind of neat to see, you know, actual wrestlers pulling off the same moves we're seeing on the page. <laughs> and kind of makes me think, like, does me is Mira a secret wrestling, like, nerd? Well, he just trying to get this out of his system. <laughs> I, was about, I was about to say, you know, Mira's actually... Uh, he's a big fan of fighting sports, you know, mm. and that's stuff you can see in Berserk as well. Like, you know, the Tapasa or even, you know, Silas fighting style. Mm-hmm. This kind of stuff is not like, it's a bit obscure to us, but, uh, you know, like, you know, the, the fighting styles they use and, you know, in India, it's pretty much the, well, the birthplace of martial arts, you know, like Kung right. Fu was derived from, you know, Indian martial arts. And, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, like I said, the Tapasa is the best example. There are, you know, and Mura's a big, you know, a uh, big fan of fighting sports. And specifically, when he was in high school and after that, uh, he did a lot of judo, you know. And um, so, you know, it's, it's really no surprise to me that he's doing this because, uh, you know, it's just what he likes. I think it's personally what he likes. And so it's a change for him uh, from uh, sword fighting, you know, sword fighting, mm-hmm. even though the Dragon Slayer is uh, hardly a standard sword. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to be, you know, focused on, you know, Delos fighting. And uh, like I said, I don't know if I told you or if I said so, you know, on the previous podcast, but I think it might eventually end up with him somehow fighting the, the giants, you know, like, you know, similarly, like just, you know, wrestling or something like that, you know. I think it's going to focus on that aspect of things. Yeah, I I don't know why, but it, it seems obvious to me now that that's going to be the case. It did not strike me until this episode or this chapter or whatever that it, that might be where things are headed. And then there's this shot as Ogun remembers his past and the, the giant is walking. And then you, you see what comes into clear focus is the giant's hands as it's walking. I'm like, oh, shit. Dells is going to grapple with that thing and fucking suplex it. Uh, I, just don't, <laughs> I just don't know how it's going to happen. And then Azil, you had, you had offered that. 
maybe he could merge with Prome and maybe that would be what happens. I, I don't know. Or maybe she'll empower him to some extent. I don't have yeah. to do, actually. But. Well, it's, bec- it's because of what she says about, uh, you know, uh, him using her, you know, making use of her, you know, function oh. or something like that. You know, they have some kind of contract between them. And uh, we don't really know, you know, all the details of it. But, uh, yeah, they, they've got a, a common goal. And I think... Uh, well, it's pretty clear the, the focus of the story and the climax will be uh, Delos and Prome fighting against the giants that coming to destroy the the, the city, yeah. you know, the insect city, and uh, and that's going to be the focus of the story, you know, like that particular encounter. And I guess the the scope would be, you know, I, I think we'll get exposition as to you know more parts of the world and stuff like that, but it would remain light, you know, you know, like yeah. open to the imagination. And, uh, after the, you know, after the battle, after they save these guys, it will be like, oh, we're off to another place to save, you know, fighting the empire, you know. Hmm. So I, I think it's going to be like that, you know, uh, as far as, uh, you know, scope of the story. I was just randomly looking at the shot of the, uh, the lizard man fighting the cat man. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that, yeah, it was just, that was an interesting little throw in, you know. Yeah, you know, I was going to say, uh, that was the most exciting part to me was seeing the empire and seeing that kind of the conditions of things. And it's, it's what you would expect is gladiatorial combat. Uh, and that makes sense given what we know of Dallas's character, but uh, you know, this, to see other hybrids, it gives you kind of a sense of what the world was. Yeah. The goat man, the reptile man. And I I guess, you know, tiger man. (laughs) Delos says, he tells Ogun that, um, like he's really strong and he hasn't, fought such a strong adversary uh, since uh, last time he fought a bear man you know mm. so <laughs> yeah so he's he's fought a bear man before you know it's, it's pretty you know like you know it, it lets us imagine that he's fought all kinds of crazy creatures you know and, and uh, what's interesting is that the wrestling moves he used are something that's unique to his like you know to the hue you know like his clan the mm. standard humans you know that's something only them fight with you know hmm. interesting I wonder if the bear man came from the uh, Russian area of the continent. <laughs> oh, that would be pretty fun. <laughs> anyway, you know, to to expand a bit on you know what you know this episode goes on about, you know, you have you know Prome you know comments on the fact and Delos himself that you know the when Ogun was you know striking him, he had all the rage and the anger of the crowd in his fists, you know, like. It's not just, you know, even in the first episode, you know, Prome comments on how, you know, the crowd itself is raging against Delos and that nobody could stay calm, you know, under such circumstances, but he does actually. He's just, you know, he doesn't mind it, you know. And so in this episode, as he gets punched to the ground and he gets up, you know, the crowd starts, like, it, there's a change, you know, they start, you know, respecting him and, uh, they're not so much against him anymore, you know, like they can appreciate what he does. And that's also why, he tells Ogun, I mean, at least he lets him know that it's also why he decided to fight, you know, head on and to let himself be punched in the face and stuff like that. Because he wanted for them to start rooting for him, you know, to, you know, let off some of their, you know, pent up anger. Mm-hmm. It was weird to see their relationship change so quickly in this in this issue. At the end, the end of the last issue, I don't, I don't have the translation for it yet, but I'm pretty sure he said, like, my name's Delos. I'm the one that's going to kill you. Like he uses the kanji no. for Delos, I think. <laughs> no, actually, he says, "My name is Delos. You should know the name of the one you intend to kill." Oh, yeah, that you intend to kill. That was missing. Yeah, the and so because Ogun is rushed, he's just he's enraged, you know. Sure. Like his name, 
his name means male warrior. So it's, it's a bit like, you know, truly like an insect, you know, like a drone, you know. And so he's, he's a specific, uh, you know, amongst those guys because his skin is almost completely, you know, uh, shitting, you know, it's, it's almost mm-hmm. completely, you know, an exoskeleton. So it's very, you know, uh, hard and just mm-hmm. impossible for Delos to, to pursue it. So in any case, you know, even though Delos tells him that the guy is just enraged, he tells him he's going to break his jaw to prevent him from speaking anymore, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> but actually, as they keep on fighting, how to say, you know, it comes through that Delos is not just, you know, a pawn of the empire. He doesn't, you know, like these guys are just, you know, they are, they are enraged because, you know, they've been mistreated by the empire, you know, considered just bugs and just, you know, like the empire has burned their cities and uh, salted the earth so that nothing could regrow, you know. This kind of, you know, stuff. So they have really been exterminating them. And, uh, yeah, they, they call themselves, um, Mekarabe, you know, like, you know, oh, like they... a, like a scarabe, yeah. you know, scarab and, uh, Mecha, you know, as in the holy city, you know, so it's a bit, uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting oh. use of the word. It means, uh, holy, you know, kindred of the holy insect, you know, that kind of stuff. Man, there is some cool stuff happening in there, actually. I, I haven't transcribed it yet, so I haven't even actually touched the, text of it so sounds like but, you were a little uh, disappointed with uh this one me like initially yeah i mean that it wasn't you know that it's sort of this like you said the scope that uh yeah totally i was oh, totally i think I, yeah. I said so but yeah i mean yeah once i have all the text maybe a little maybe you know it's kind of like when i started vagabond uh, it was just a bunch of fucking guys staring at each other instead of fighting you know <laughs> and, and then I got the translation, like, oh, I'm just been a fucking moron. Well, this, isn't, this isn't what it brought to mind, and we heard it was a million years in the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's what we said last time. Also, was just like I did not expect it to be a fighting series uh, quite like this. But uh, I, I want to know more about it, and the things you just said, Azil, are pique my interest for sure, because that is what I'm more interested in. Uh, not so much the fighting stuff, but whatever. that being said, you know, uh, going back to the. You know, a hundred million years, you know, actually that, that's one of the things, like it's a promotional material, you know, that uh, Young Animal said, but it doesn't actually say so in the story, you know, like oh, at the okay. beginning, it it just says, uh, like, you know, in the far, future, yeah, yeah as a far and distant future, just because history, just before history, you know, ends, like, you know, mm-hmm. it's just before the end of mankind, the end of history, the end of everything, you know, so it's, uh, how to say, it means to, to, to say that it's uh, at the end of our time, but there's no element of time given if it's a million or a hundred, you know, thousand or anything like One that. One zillion years I've had, I've had time. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, one six months from now, I mean. <laughs> no. Yeah. One thing Azili pointed out was a uh, little cameo appearance on page one. I'm not. I'm still not super convinced. I think it's just a coincidence, oh. but but you you could. I think you could easily convince me. That, uh, well, yeah, well, it's a it's a secret cucumber. I mean, maybe Mura just you know, maybe he just loves secret cucumbers, and you know, I mean, maybe he's been eating secret cucumbers all day, and he's like, oh fuck, I'll just put one in as well. But I don't know to see one up, you know, like that, just eating some, you know, whatever critter it is. Which actually, I I kind of like those critters. I don't know what they remind me of, but uh, you know, they look they look cute. Anyway, they're like dinosaurs. They're like Stegosaurus snails. Yeah, yeah. So they've got they've got all, all these, you know, many legs and many some kind of I don't know trunks or whatever. What's the one with the like? The, I, uh, I know what you mean. I can't remember. Armosaur, Ar- isn't it? Armosaur. <laughs> now I'm gonna look it up. My Dino Writer's <laughs> education is coming back to me. <laughs> 
Well, in any know. case, I think, uh, yeah, I think this second combo might be, uh, uh, like a little nod to Berserk, you know, I don't know, maybe not, but. Forget a cameo or a nod, I want this all to be like the Empire is like the distant Falconian future and, you know, Griffith is still alive. <laughs> yeah. It's I, all I, gonna tie together. Yeah, that's, that could, actually, that could be, you know, at the very end, you know, you see a man sitting on a throne. Mm. <laughs> it's Griffith. <laughs> it's Griffith. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. It's the, uh, it's, if, uh, the, it's the ankylosaur, just saying. Yeah. You know, Dale's thing. I remember my ancestor, you know, a man with a big sword, you know. I don't know. <laughs> that, that being said, you know, there are some thematic similarities between he and Guts, I think, particularly because of Promay's involvement. There's a strong similarity to her and Gut, or her, Guts and Puck. Uh, which, well, yeah. That being said, um, Delos is different in that he he's not, you know, his personality is completely different. You know, I mean, of course, he's a fighter, so he seems he's know, a lot lighter. Yeah, he's he's just, you know, like he tells Ogun, he can't feel, you know, he thinks hate is a bothering feeling, so he just doesn't, you know, like he right. doesn't he doesn't care about that kind of stuff. He's quick to forgive people. He's not. Yeah, so, you know, as far as his personality goes, he's not really like Gus, but... Uh, sure. Is he more like uh, Goku than Guts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, I'm not going to answer the question. <laughs> you already did. You said, yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> Another thing that happens... But that's... who would win? You know, Goku or Superman? <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. What about the... I've always wanted to know the juggernaut and the blob thing, the the uh, the um, unmovable oh. and the unstoppable. Yeah, so, so I think it's uh, with the, the Herc, you know, like, uh, and I actually read some, you know, I, I don't ask me how, or when, or you know, but I read some like some pretty heavy theorizing on that, and the thing was that, like, you know, the blob would stick to the ground, and the Herc would like rip off, you know, half of the Earth or something like that because. <laughs> he's, yeah, so, you know, like, boss would win because he didn't move, but at the same time, like, the crust of the earth was removed by the power of the Hulk. Some shit like that, you know. <laughs> uh, sounds like the, the same kind of science that led to the core being made. The movie, the core. Yeah. We killed the planet. <laughs> <laughs> My God. Oh, I, I did see that movie. Wow. Fucking A, you did? Wow. Yeah. Speaking of the, talking about, I forgotten about it, you know, like you're, you're awakening some, you know, trauma, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I should have mentioned to the early, earlier in the show that, uh, I did see, uh, that fucking movie with the giant robots and then, but we won't talk about that. Um, one other cool thing that happens in this episode was last podcast I mentioned, I wonder if there was anything up with Ogun's, uh, scarab on his belt and towards the end of the fight, at the, at the end of the fight, Delos catches a glimpse of a scarab on a wall that kind of zooms in on his eye, and then there's this, this kind of like, you know, creature, uh, observing the fight through a, um, multi-lens. What's the, what's the word for that when the insects have multi-vision? I can't remember the name of it, but, uh, anyway. Mm. Yeah. He's, uh, observing the fight kind of, it was like kind of some kind of overseer, perhaps. Uh, yeah. Reminded me of Mr. X from, uh, Streets of Rage, you know? <laughs> sure. <laughs> And at the end of the episode, fast forwarding, uh, Ogun takes him, uh, into the scarab, it looks like a scarab, uh, structure. So I'm sure going to go meet whoever that strange guy yeah. is. Are There's we gonna a... skip over, uh, Promay's magic? No, no, no. I, that's, I was, I was just fast forwarding based on the, uh, you know, following that little plot thread. But yeah, that was the next thing I was gonna do was, uh, her method of, uh, healing, uh, reviving. Yeah. Yeah. 
once again with the skirt thing. Jesus Christ. Uh, lower panel of 29, you can actually see like the effect of it on the sand. It's like a, like a, almost like a hair dryer or some kind of wind, you know, blowing yeah. down from her. Uh, still very mysterious. Um, we talked about it in the thread a little bit about the nature of her. And she acts sort of robotic, but she has an affinity with plants or, or, or just plant life in general in, in, the, in terms of her design. She uses the word nectar in terms of, uh, you know, the power she, or the, the way she could heal him. Yeah, she says she, she's going to give something like from her body to his. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit, you know, it's pretty mysterious, but uh, it implies, you know, I don't know. That, you know, again, that she's, she's some kind of superior being, you know, like I don't know if it's a god or an android or something like that, but... Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. It will be neat to see what the actual nature of her is, if it ever is elaborated on. I think it kind of has to be with so many curious things about her. You need to know a little bit more about her. Um, and she's able to heal things by kissing them, which is, sure. Okay. Um, like I said, the, my favorite part of the episode was seeing the, the Empire flashback stuff. Um, just to get a glimpse into what the you know the ruling class looks like, even in the gladiatorial sense, was kind of cool because that was what I was expecting from this episode and beyond. Just a little bit more world information. Uh, and during the you know the flashback, it's not just a small detail, but you know Delos is wearing a different belt insignia during that time, and he has a much more elaborate looking one by the time we see him. Probably an, it indicates you know rank or status or proficiency in combat. Maybe who knows. Know. Could be, might be also just uh, you know, spe- <laughs> yeah, specific uh, in, in signal or something like that. He just mm-hmm. you know that he likes, yeah, <laughs> or indicative of his new uh, you know allegiances or agenda or whatever you know. Yeah, yeah. It is, it, it, again, it hints at the depth of the world that I want to know more about, and that I just don't know much of yet. One thing I'm curious about is a whole uh, human problem met, you know, like originally, you know, totally. like yeah, definitely. He, he was a he was a slave essentially, you know, fighting in the arena, and he didn't like it because he didn't like the, the way the crowd, you know, was just you know out for for blood and that kind of shit. But uh, yeah, it remains to be seen how he and Prome met and set up uh, set off on their journey, you know, their current journey. So. Yeah, I wonder if we're ever going to get that specific kind of information about them. Just like, again, six issues isn't much ground to cover for this with all these materials still to cover. Uh, I just don't think it's going to get there. It would be great. Well, the thing is, uh, yeah, because we've almost seen half, like half the story, you know. Mm, A third of it. Yeah, it's like, you know, uh, I don't know, two-fifths or something like that. So we're, we're pretty close to, it's more than a third, actually, you know. Because of the page count? Yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, just using the page count, you know, not, uh, yeah, right. because we, we got, you know, you know, 44 and 43 pages and, uh, the remaining apps are going to be like, you know, 29, you know, each or something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've seen, we've seen a lot of stories so far. Yeah. Well, it'll be back in the next issue. Actually, there's no date listed, but it is coming back, I'm assuming, on the next issue, Young Animal. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, uh, it will be, uh, back in Young Animal, uh, issue number one, which will come out on, uh, December 27th. Yeah, yeah. New Year's episode for us, I guess. Uh, yep. Anything else on the, uh, issue before we move on? 
Well, there's one thing uh, that we haven't really mentioned so far is that the characters speak uh, in a way, like, they speak a bit oddly, you know, uh, as if, like, you know, not like modern Japanese, you know, mm. so I think it's a mirror's way of showing that uh, it's, you know, in a different world, you know, like the, the world has evolved. So so the way they speak is it's not a thing that can really be translated to English, but, uh, you know, they, they speak differently, like, you know, as if they are not from this time. I noticed Delos has a weird dialect where he'll add Sue to things that don't yeah. need Sue on them. Yeah, uh, they, they, they all speak like that, you know, a bit weirdly, you know. Yeah. I must make translating it really fun. Well, you'd, you'd have to ask Bella, but uh, <laughs> she was quite, you know, how to say, bothered by it, you know. Yeah. Like, but it's mostly just because it's long and uh, promise talk is uh, a bit, you know, complicated. Sure. I mean, the transcription for episode issue one was insane. I mean, it was by far the longest that I'd ever done. I mean, it just kept going and going. There's so much text. So can't be fun at all. So um the end of the last podcast, I'd asked people what they wanted to see moving forward from this show. And like by far and away from in the poll and in the comments, everyone wants us to see us go through a reread of a sort uh, for the series. Now, like I haven't done that. Until now, because I mean, for multiple multiple reasons. First, the primary one is I don't want the show to become boring, and I, I think if we do like a, I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do a page by page analysis because, good God, at that point, just go read the series again. I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna commentate on it for to that level, but I do think there's some you know value in, in kind of going over the volume at large. Uh, but you know, the honest truth, I'm not sure what kind of show or what kind of segment that that would end up as. So what you're going to see today is sort of like my first attempt to make that interesting or to make that like listenable because yeah, I mean it's, that sounds like a likely segment, right? Let's review volume one, but the actual how to of that is, I mean, I'm kind of just going out on, on a limb on, on the way I do things. So basically what I've done is over the course of the week, I went through volume one and took notes. And so we're going to go through, Kind of some of the the observations that I made in the highlights, and that's just the structure. Like, obviously, you guys, anything you want to add, obviously, it's no different from any other episode. I'm just saying, I went through and kind of wrote down my thoughts. And I think I'm going to be pretty interested in the first note. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Actually, the first note, you know, I always see things I haven't noticed before, even though you know I've read the series for more than a decade. The be- I paid a lot of attention to small panels that I may have skipped over before. Like I wasn't so interested in getting the gist of the story, but I actually looked at the panel, the individual panels and, and things that seemed like a little off kilter and, and tried to interpret what that might have meant. So my very first note actually opening volume one and I uh, skipping past the actual sex scene until the, until he actually blows her up. The one of the panels he has as he's walking away uh, after he fires a shot, throws his cape over his shoulder there's this panel of him uh, with a, an ellipsis and there's like there's sweat marks on his face, sweat on his face as if to say like despite the fact that he, you know, was acting tough and, and he did accomplish his job, it was a close call to a certain extent. It did go, get pretty far into it and she transforms and everything and he looks mm-hmm. almost a little worried about the way things ended, but it's just a one-off panel. You can take it for what you will. He doesn't actually say anything, but – the impression I get from the sweat beads and the, the ellipsis and the look on his face that he actually was a little worried about that encounter let's, at the end. Let's do some fixing here. Okay. <laughs> like it's uh, – that could be the stress of the brand, 
being that close. It could oh, be wow. That, yeah. Huh? I, I guess he might be sweaty from all the sex he'd been having yeah, with the other soldiers before. He doesn't look sweaty before. Yeah, you know, no, I find my two favorite things, you know, before like that, but, you know, killing and, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, but, that was just uh, the first observation that I made. No, but, I, uh, I think it's a, I think it's a pretty good observation actually. You yeah. know, the fact it uh, it was a cool school, you know, and I think it's uh, it illustrates well the, the way he was at the time in that he was pretty reckless, you know, like yeah. you know, killing an apostle. He didn't give a shit. We get we get to see a, a bit of that also later on when uh, he tells Puck that he doesn't really care about the people of the village. All he wants is for the the apostle to come out to try to kill him, you know. And he doesn't care if you know people get killed, whatever, you know. So I think it's <clears throat> it's a good uh, illustration of his, you know, st- you know, state of mind at the time, you know. Yeah, and that's that's the crux of this whole the whole first arc, really. The first few stories is is you know. What's interesting about the story is who is this character? As you're starting out the series, you know nothing about him. The first page, he's having sex with the monster, basically, just so she can kill him. And then whenever he deals with his morality, he's sort of sarcastically says like he only cares about himself. And you know, obviously, you you and all three of us here know the full scope of the character and who he becomes and and who he is truly. But in this section of his life, I think he's sort of kind of like he's been a lone wolf for so long. He's kind of buying his own bullshit. Uh, yeah, the, the things he has to tell himself to survive, to keep himself mm-hmm. distanced from the, the people so that he doesn't become harmed or, 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 or too attached. He, he's had to uh, kind of adopt this mentality that keeps him alone and he's starting yeah. to believe it towards this – in this section. You know, he, he, the look on his face, he's he's kind of conflicted about the things that he's had to do and what we see on the page and it's – is the, the his, his grins and his sort of like you know devilish looks are kind of like the result of that on him and yeah it's so like interesting I, because he's such a dramatically different character just you know after the golden age the guts we see a year a year away from these events a year after these events he's already sort of become a little more uh sane you know like i said like i said before you know i think this shows uh, his darkest time you know like his lowest point it's absolutely you know, two two years into you know fighting uh fighting apostles and just before him he meets with puck you know yeah. and uh yeah I, I think it shows him at his lowest point like when he was about to lose himself you know in the darkness in his quest for revenge you know like you know a point where even without the berserk berserk or anything like that he was already, you know, like he didn't need the beast of darkness. He was already by himself, you know, uh, you know, on the edge almost of uh, insanity in his, you know, quest for revenge. I think, and uh, you know, I think the introduction, not just that, but also the scene of him walking into the bar and everything like that, it shows him to be uh, an anti-hero. You know, like you know, I, I think at the time, you know, when the story was published, it was not all that common, you know, to have uh, heroes like that. And I think it, it's what it establishes him. To be, you know, like not a self-righteous knight or anything of the sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he pays the bar owner. He says, "I'm going to mess your place up for a bit." And gives him some money, and then and then he starts wrecking shit, yeah. taking out the guys one by one. It's actually, a, you know, quite a classic scene. I think, you know, it like is. the yeah. guy getting into the bar. You know. Yeah, pretty. Sorry much, about you know. the you know, Star Wars as well. Han Solo did the sorry about the mess. After <laughs> yeah, Greedo. <laughs> yeah, I didn't and, think about that. You know, before you know, when he gets into town, there's also a scene where he sees like the kids being mm-hmm. taken to the to the, to the baron, you know, and, and like he knows what what it's 
what he's about, you know. You know, and he doesn't does... actually, like, rescue them or anything yeah. at any point. It's not like they come back to it later, like, uh-oh, here, let me get you out of here, too. Like, yeah. when he's imprisoned, <laughs> they never follow up on it. Well, yeah. he uses it He uses it against the uh, the mayor, basically. He says that you're using those yeah. children as payment for uh, to keep him basically sated. Yeah. But um, what's That's interesting a... about the establishing shot uh, after the after he kills the, the uh, female apostle is it kind of gives it's just it's just three panels it's like four or five panels and you see that there's this like you know valiant knight next to this you know basically this guy this, this peasant guy establishing like a, a a disparity in the in the in this town yeah. like something something's fucked with this town where these two elements can exist side by side you know that. i think uh, sorry you you want to finish no no that's really it I was going to say, I think, you know, these shots, like you see as a beggar, we know, who's lost a foot next to the night. And then, you know, on the, the panel after that, you see a shot of some, some guy in armor flirting with some girls. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, of course, it's not on the level of Ritanis, you know, but I think it shows even very early on like that, that Mura's got a specific attention to detail, you know, like yeah. he likes to, he likes to fill, you know, panels with this kind of stuff, you know, and, you can tell, you know, in many of these shots, even in, you know, volume one, which is often considered by people to be, you know, lacking, you know, graphically. But, you know, there's a lot of panels where, you know, there's really a lot of small details, you know, and a uh, lot of small things that <coughs> set it above, you know, your standard, you know, average, you know, manga, you know. Particularly the armor design, which is, yeah. by the way, one thing I noticed when I was doing <coughs> the Berserk kill count is always consistent. You know, there's very few... Uh, variables whenever it changes panels and that's always fascinated me with the way he designs uh characters and armor that he sticks to those designs regardless of where he's drawing them from uh in this shot where he's ticking out the, the bandits uh i still hear the fucking anime sound effects in the crossbow fire <laughs> it's been ingrained in my head at this point i've seen that so many times unfortunately but, uh, so people can see Puck in this and, uh, talking about him is like, oh, that poor elf. Like everyone knows about elves. Everyone can see elves. I guess this town is just at that point where the association with the church is that distant or it's just so early in the series. He has not yet drawn those lines, you know, in terms that, of- or it could be just that because they've had, they've been under the impression, uh, oppression of the snake baron. Yeah. So long that they're just, you know, they can all, nothing is, you know. <laughs> beyond the pale for them yeah so everyone's well, so cynical in this town that you know they're just it's it's a, right and left it's also in the, in the boondocks you know like the, the fact uh, the the guys like the snake barons men are you know the law around there you know it shows that it's pretty much lost uh, in the woods or wherever yeah. it is it is cool that uh you know gut says his name to the guy that he you know mm-hmm. kind of held captive for a moment and you know he has a reputation that's something I always forget about uh is that you know the black swordsman uh that's a name that people at least these kind of people recognize you know guts yeah. does have a reputation among people like this and, and the apostles whereas now we're so used to him you know kind of blending in despite the fact that he has this huge armor and huge sword no one really knows who guts is guts of the hawks of the falcons and but the black swordsman is a name that carries weight well, what's interesting is that he has multiple reputations separately, like where, you know, people remember that Raiders captain and they remember the Black Swordsman or they've heard right. of them, but they no one actually has them tied together except for, you know, very select few would yeah. know that. Yeah. Basically his, you know, old associate. So, yeah, it's interesting that, you know, Guts has made his reputation multiple times yeah. in multiple personas. Yeah. 
You know, one thing I like about this episode, this volume, you know, is that the pacing is pretty insane. I think it's very, yeah. very well sought out, you know, and the fact specifically that, you know, things about Gus get revealed, you know, progressively, you know, big the, the arm cannon, you know, at the beginning with the apostle and then the crossbow, you know, then the dragon slayer, mm-hmm. then when he gets imprisoned as a brand, you know, and mm-hmm. it goes on and on and on like that. I, I think the, the pacing is, you know, what's, you know, something people might not really notice or might take for granted, but it's really quite, when you pay attention to it, it's really quite well sought out, you know. Well, it's also, this this whole issue is so dense. I say that a lot, but, you know, just taking notes on this and I'm, I'm realizing that every page, something big is happening. Al- almost every page, there's something a- a worthy of note. You know, he, he definitely moves at a quick pace for sure. I mean, what's interesting is this whole first section is sort of like a... A side story before he comes to the count, which you know encapsulates the next two volumes, basically. But this is yeah. sort of like an, this is sort of like the establishing scene like in the action movie where the star walks into a bar, literally, and you know takes out someone to establish who he is and his reputation. You know? yeah, it, in- it introduces you know things from the story, like you know from uh, you know the brand, like the dragon slayer. Mm-hmm. There's the specters. He's attacked by specters. A lot of those things. It's just you know, like it just as a, as an introduction, but it's done very very well done. You know, right. Um, guts was thinner back now. Back then, his less bulky. His design was quite a bit different, and obviously he bulks up. You know, further into the series, and it's interesting to think about. Uh, Mira's character design at the time was a little bit different. I know we touched on that uh, talking about the prototype, but uh, I wonder... His face is different as well. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's more angular, just all over. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I mean, you can still, I mean, you could kind of see it in the idea that he's just supposed to be a large, proportional guy. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, very tall, very you know, but still very strong. yeah. But he does. He just looks, you know, lighter, thinner. Yeah, he's more lanky than uh, than he does later in the story. You know, when he just becomes gigantic, you know, in every way. I mean, even <laughs> yeah. the Dragon Slayer looks like you know skinnier. <laughs> like, it does, uh, yeah, for sure. Like, <laughs> so, <laughs> a little thinner. Was the, yeah, there were think, the, the lean days. Yeah, this is you know he's probably you know he doesn't have a lot of food. Let's let's justify yeah, it. You know, it's probably uh, winter. And yeah. <laughs> me- metal does contract when it's cold, so it makes sense. <laughs> um, well, one of these things about the apostle was, uh, it's cool to see kind of like a life, a day in the life of an apostle. You know, we kind of hear how this guy came into town. He threatened the town or he was just a bandit. And basically he just, you know, took up shop here and said, yeah, now, now you're going to feed me instead of me going out in the roads and terrorizing people. I'm going to terrorize this town and the town will then now feed me. It's kind of yeah. like a like a local mobster, and uh, despite Although, the fact, go ahead. When you look at the you know the castle design, you know like the, the you know road leading up to it, it's like, and you know the, the castle you're just missing you know the thunder is in the background, and then there's a dining room with mm-hmm. a gigantic table you know all empty in the empty dining room. It's like you know he's a fucking archetypal you know villain like Dracula, Dracula you know something yeah. like that yeah totally yeah <laughs> and it's, it's it's pretty badass actually and he's actually eating human meat you know so that's all the better yeah. it's been prepped like a <laughs> like a meal like a regular you know cooked meal but it's just i guess raw human flesh <laughs> it's been prepared to look like human food on the plate but well, the thing i find interesting about the snake baron and the count is they sort of set this archetype for apostles Mm-hmm. And what they're like that isn't necessarily true if you look at uh, 
like statistically, you know, all apostles, you know, that, yeah. you know, a lot of them are really just sort of scram. I mean, they're just sort of out in the woods, you know, like, you know, monsters, you know, just scrounging around. But they sort of set this idea of, you know, this archetypical black swordsman story where he goes around, you know, to these castles and basically fighting, you know, yeah, Dracula type characters mm-hmm. that are holed up in these castles like this. So it's just interesting, you know, the contrast and development that, you know, I guess they sort of explored the different, you know, things with Rochin later, you know, how it could, you know, a totally different kind of setup. You know, she still set up her own little kingdom, but of a completely different sort. Right. Yeah. And I guess the contrast of, you know, before <laughs> uh, the eclipse, you know, maybe they, they really, we other than Wild, we really didn't see, you know, apostles set up with this kind of, you know, human power base where you know they've got their own place in society well it makes yeah. you think like they're on only order is to do as they will you'd think more people would do what this guy's doing you know yeah basically completely terrorizing humans and and living it's, off of and them. making himself like some you know making himself a boss you know somewhere. right yeah you know, a gangster yeah lobster um it makes you think how would this guy get along in falconia you know <laughs> with other <laughs> humans probably not very well uh, well, and, he would, you know, shut up in front of Locus or Grunbel, you know, and be like, all right, all right, let's stop eating little girls. <laughs> For now. I'll put this bowl away. Yeah. And uh, while Guts is in prison, we get the first shot of his son, his deformed son. What's interesting to me about its appearance is that it's not necessarily malicious. You know, it's not like, you know, I, I, I guess I really can't look at him in anger. But if you look at it alone, it's just simply, you know, being there. It's not terrorizing necessarily until he gets to this dream sequence he has uh, much later in the story where then it <laughs> appears a little more malicious. Yeah, and but so even I, then it's just a dream. Like, Of course, not- of course. It's his perception of the thing. It's his fear <laughs> that it's feeding off of. So it made me think about the child intentions at, at this particular point in his life. I, I always do wonder, you know, what his relationship with his dad actually is, what, he, what the child thinks of its, of its dad. It, it, no. it Go ahead. I actually think uh, the boy was no different from who he is now. In that, mm-hmm. he he didn't, you know, he didn't have bad intentions for his father. You know, if you look at, at the shot, you know, one thing that interests me about it is that when he appears, God says you again. You know, it's like yeah. you know, so it already establishes that it's a recurring character, something that has been haunting guts. You know. So actually, it's it's pretty amazing, you know, that even this early in the story, you know, where he's pretty much just introducing various concepts, you know, uh, Mira had already planned for the demon child to be a recurring character and everything like that, you know. So, and yeah, the way I think you see him crawling, you know, I, I don't think it intends uh, anything malicious, you know. I, right. At least I never saw it like that. It's rather Guts, who's, you know, almost hysterical, you know, telling him to stay back, you know, without really any reason. You know what's also cool is the way it appears. It act- it actually does uh, adhere to the rules we know of these things. It's in the it's in the, the shadows and the darkness that it appears. It's yeah. this little corner of the room where it appears away from the light. You know, totally relevant to what happens these days. You know, going a bit before, you know, uh, to when Gus is being interrogated by the guy. You know, the sure. torturer. You know, I'm impressed in the, in the, in this, this, uh, volume, like, again, this early in the story is that Mira, he's, he's going for some pretty cool angles, you know, and, uh, again, there's a shot of when the guy's about to torture him, you know, where you see, like, there's some arbors in the, in the front row and some torture tools, and then you see all other stuff, and you, you just, the panel is just incredibly detailed, actually, and, uh, mm-hmm. 
I don't know. I, f- I find it quite, you know, quite impressive. Like you see the backgrounds of some stuff, some, uh, you know, let's say stuff that's not, you know, out of place in Mosgus, you know, uh, room, you know, later on in the story. So I think it's very, you know, very detailed and many of the shots are quite ambitious, you know, like the angles and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, it's hard to put a finger on what it is about the style. I guess what it is is the fact that I know how, wh- what he develops into as an artist, that it makes it difficult to come back and look at this as earlier, simpler times. But I, I, I technically, I don't really have a problem with the, the way this, that the panels are being framed. It's 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 interesting, and it, it does deviate quite a bit than what you'd expect from of, of a at this time a still a beginning artist. But um. Something about it, I think it has to do with the time he had to spend on these issues. I, I would imagine that it's just not quite as, uh. Yeah, of course. Well, a lot of, a lot of shots are on white backgrounds. Right. That's of, what it yeah, is. Yeah. He didn't have time, you know. He was, he was also busy, you know, collaborating with Brunson and, and that kind of stuff. So sure. I think his work, you know, like he would, he would, you know, how to say, concentrate on the work, you know, with, you know, the famous guy rather than his own stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, at the time, he didn't have any assistance, you know, not until uh, volume seven. Right. Um, I didn't actually have anything written down for the actual assault of the Snake Baron or the. Uh, I, I mean, I don't. It's not that I don't like it or anything. I just didn't have anything really to add from. Well, again, I, I, I think there are some pretty cool shots there. You know, not to you know stick to that, but when you see the you know puck flying over the you know town burning, you know that kind of stuff, or the knights, you know the I mean the let's say minions of the snake baron, you know charging that kind of stuff, or mm-hmm. him even drinking blood from the the boy, you know I think these shots are, are pretty cool, pretty well made, and uh, and actually pretty daring, you know, to show a, a child like that, you know, cut in half. Yeah. You know the guy drinking blood from from uh, the body. It's it's pretty. You know, how to say? I was a pretty hardcore. You know, for the time again. Yeah. He also uses the dragon slayer with one hand in this section, yeah. which always impresses that's me. Before he uses it with his teeth. Like, that's right. You know, yeah. If you think that's impressive, <laughs> I don't know. The thing that sort of strikes me about the, I mean, this whole final battle, other than like a lot of the cool shots, him cutting it in half, and of course the surprise of uh, his arm cannon on the snake baron was, you know, the role reversal right after that, where, you know, it's the snake yeah. baron who's begging him for mercy and guts is the one being cruel and, you know, sort of being a vicious monster and, you know, puck, you know, it isn't lost on him. And that's where, you know, things really become, you know, more interesting, you know, where it doesn't just seem like a bluff on his part about how, you know, evil and, you know, uncaring he is, you know, you really see, you know, that darkness come out. So, and that's and that's where it leaves off the first episode. So yeah, that's sort yeah, of what leaves you wanting more. It's still one of the most iconic scenes to me, and, and perhaps because it was my first exposure to the series was uh, him taunting the Snake Baron after he's down. Yeah. Um. Whenever we, uh, you know, obviously there's some something to be said about Cheech and Puck, uh, but I don't, I think we've already said it a couple different times on previous podcasts, so I won't really say it other than I'm certainly reminded of Cheech now, uh, going through these scenes with Puck and, uh, in the, in the, in the prison for sure. But moving forward anyway, um, this is, po- this is moment when he's talking to Puck. Uh, I can't find the page right now. This is what I was fearful of doing this kind of thing for. 
where he scratches his arm, similar to what Griffith does in the waiver with Cass. Uh, that's, uh, that's, no, that's earlier. That's when he's in jail, you know. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. You know, after Puck leaves. Like, after he tells Gus, he tells Puck, you know, uh, some pretty hurtful things, you know. Like, you know, he says he doesn't care about the villagers, you know, whatever. And, um, how to say, when Puck's, when Puck is, you know, telling him not to say like that, he says, you know, what do you think you are? You know, you know, do you think anybody would care about you? He's like, like, he was that kind of stuff. Right. So, uh, Puck, you know, flies into his chin and then flies out the window. And, and so, that's Guts, uh, yeah, Guts is actually yeah, like, passion. yeah, you know, Puck is crying and, you know, Guts is like, you know, he's shocked that he didn't, uh, he, he didn't mean to be hurtful to him or suggesting. And actually, that's a, a good point where you could make the connection with Chich, you know, in like, you know, you know, well, even though, you know, it's like, we, d- we know Mira hadn't thought about Cheech at the time, you know, but right. it's retro-engineered in, in a way that you, we could say like, uh, maybe Gert is remembering, you know, his, uh, or say his time with Cheech or whatever. And so when he just lying there, he scratches his arm in a way that, yeah, resembles grief is pretty, you know, well, yeah. it's pretty much the same thing. I had just written down that it seems like he's he's trying to internalize that the pain that he's feeling or externalize the pain that he's feeling, but he can't really do it. But I didn't really know why he did it necessarily. It's a yeah, good conversation since, to have. Like you see him looking at his arm, you know, mm-hmm. before there's a panel before where he looks at his arm, yeah, and then he scratches his flesh like that. So it's like he's doing it on purpose. It's a bit weird. Yeah, it is a little weird. Uh, I didn't have much written down for the Colette thing other than that we see the dynamic of how spirits and ghosts can uh, inhabit existing bodies, which is a really cool concept. I'm sure it's happened before, but I I think it's a fascinating idea that, you know, roaming ghosts can continue to inhabit these uh, pre-existing battle scenes and suddenly as a, you know, skeleton warfare over and over until the sun comes up. It's just a, it's a precedent that's set and it's continued even, well, until recently, so. Yeah, I see this one as more of a character, you know, this world building, character development sort of episode. I mean, we see, you know, Guts reiterates how he doesn't care about anything or anyone, and that is, you know, that assertion is challenged with Colette, and when he has to kill her, we, you know, again, reverse engineering stuff, you know, he vomits after he kills her, and later they actually make it, you know, they establish a history there with him, you know, and children. And, you yeah. know, why that would make him sick, you know, other than just, you know, doing it for the first time in that instance, as far yeah. as we know. So, I mean, it was, it's an interesting episode. It's, you know, yeah. by the end, I think he's saying again how, you know, he doesn't care about anything. But I think Puck is also sort of, he's seeing through it. Yeah. Right. So, and, and so is the reader at this point as well. Yeah. And he could see, I mean, you could see how much he's hurting and how much pain he's in. He's like, he's basically fleeing, you know, the scene. You know, he says, oh, he doesn't care. And, yeah. I mean, just when he shoots up, you can see in his eye, you know, he's just tortured. Right. You know, actually, I actually really like the dream sequence before, you know, that fight, you know, where, you know, Guts is in uh, some kind of, uh, you know, narrow corridor, you know, uh-huh. that goes on endlessly and uh, very high. And this giant eye, you know, looking at him from t- from up top, you know. And then he sees a demon child, you know, like, you know, I don't know, just rearing up, you know, as a giant being, you know, in front of him. Anyway, I really like the dream sequence. I don't know why. And I, I have nothing really special to say about it, but I, I've always, you know, loved it, especially the opening shot with the giant eyeball, you know, it could be, you know, like it could hint 
both as a reader, you know, and also as a, you know, gold hand or, you know, I don't know, a super being, you know, watching from up high or something like that. It's pretty interesting. It's a believable like the... nightmare. <laughs> it's like, it's pretty, <laughs> I mean, it's, well, it's... it has all the sensations of being trapped, you know, the yeah. visible. And you know, the, the, the spike. F- yeah, the fact he, yeah, he, he steps on the spike, you know, so it's actually very close to a real nightmare, you know. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's also symbolic of, you know, he feels trapped and he feels pinned in because of everything with, uh, tracking apostles and causality. He feels like he's on the same track. He feels like he's constantly being watched because of the things the spirits say to him later. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it all and, makes uh, sense. Yeah. And the fact he, he doesn't have his arm cannon, you know, so he like, he watches his stump, you know, so, so some stuff we don't see often in the series, but you know, it comes back later, later on, you know, the fact, you know, missing an arm is yeah. like, even though, even though it's badass in battle when he uses it and such, but it's actually uh, a disability, you know. Yeah. And, uh, right, right. Yeah, he's in a dark place uh, in this section, but it is interesting how we see him slowly, you know, he so slowly begin to see the man behind the, the harsh exterior he's been building during his time alone. But it's still, you know, a lot of uh, some, I'll say a lot of, some casual readers often hearken to this section of the series. They want to see more of it. They want to see more of Guts alone. But to me, it's like, First of all, that would be so supremely boring because we've sort of seen the development of the character beyond that point. To have him trapped in a certain part of his, his life is just weird. But it's just, do you hate guts? Do you want him to see constantly, you know, <laughs> hurting himself and becoming more and more insane? I mean, it's just, it's, it's a weird desire to want well, to see the character I mean, at the darkest place in his life. How much better things have gotten for him? <laughs> like, you know, when one yeah. thing gets better, another thing just gets dramatically worse. But I mean, yeah, I can see how. Again, it sort of goes back into like what the what the archetypical berserk, you know, black swordsman story is supposed to be. And I mean, it was you know they sort of it was a return to this form after the extended flashback. But I mean, you know, you got to say Golden Age was what ten volumes, you know, straight of you know something completely different. So you would think you know this is more how the tone and way the story is going to really be. I mean, even though there's that return to form and a another black swordsman story it's sort of the last one in a lot of ways yeah. or but the yeah. one he goes on the the adventure to you know reunite with casca and sort of rectify those two worlds that were given him alone fighting what's, apostles and his life that what's neat about that is that it sets a precedent in this section it sets a framework for what to expect and then yeah. he jumps it and jumps ahead, and we see him again a year a year after that set of events. So yeah. you kind of presume that he has been on adventures of this kind all along, you know. Well, um, and there's another thing is the fact, like even this early in the story, he's not he's not alone anymore. Like you know, he's already with Buck, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's a misconception that uh, you know we see guys alone, you know, just you know killing that you know female apostle at the beginning, and then he goes into the bar and Buck is there. So you know, that's pretty much. We never get to see Gus actually fighting alone as a Black Souls man, you know? You know so what just... I want to see, though? I want to see ten minutes before that sex scene. Like, how did they get there? <laughs> you know, how did they... <laughs> what? what did they say to each other? You know, what yeah. was, what was Gus well, thinking? What was she thinking was going to happen? You know, they were both you know, like, oh, gotcha. I, <laughs> you know? I think I can, you know, I think I can, you know, rationalize that in a way that's consistent with Gus' character. Clothes. You know, like Guts, you know, sought her out, you know, uh, from his brand, you know, and when he knew she was nearby, you know, he just sat up and, you know, set up his fire camp. And then she being, you know, hungry for, you know, humans, 
she came and tried to seduce him, like just you know, like a guy in a fire camp, you know, you know, woman comes up, she's hot, but she would sense his brand. She, she gets naked. Yeah, well, I guess you know. <laughs> Maybe she wasn't a mass, you know. So <laughs> she, she was. Just, she was a blonde. I mean, no, no offense to anybody. Yeah, but, you know. yeah. she was know, like. How do you how do you know this wasn't like some kind of like bar thing where they made sure they were at a bar and then they decided to meet? Oh, I think it would be easier to imagine Guts was like bathing or something. Like, is it hard for me to imagine? Like, okay, let's let's get this on. Let me take my armor off. <laughs> you know, like it, it's hard to imagine him in that place at this time in his life, especially. Like, sure, let's let's get down to business here. <laughs> That's why I say that. It's just funny to think of. I mean, this it starts there for a reason. Sure. I mean, yeah. I, a number of things. I mean, like, the first question that came to my mind, and I instantly answered it, was why didn't he just kill her if he knew she was an apostle? <laughs> yeah. Like, well, he wanted to torture her, and that's what he does. He, he makes her think that she's in she's in control, and then he completely reverses. Uh, he was it. just luring her in, you know, yeah, because exactly. at, that, at that point, he couldn't afford to be, you know like to be wounded or to get into a serious battle. So I guess he just wanted to get up close, you know, and then blew yeah. it off. I've not, blew, I've, his, I've, blew his load right into her mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! <laughs> uh, I can't top that <laughs> with what I was going to say. Uh, Desire's Guardian Angels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I have extremely little to say about this section because I actually find his first few chapters pretty boring. Uh, the first few count thing. It is more of a slow burn because they're getting yeah. into something bigger. I mean, the first two are clearly sort of these self-contained one-off stories with, you know, little connection to them except for Puck. Yeah. I mean, he's really the carryover. And yeah, this is where, I mean, things really get underway. I mean, the first, t- yeah, the first two episodes could be like, you know, like prototypes of their own sort of, you know, mm-hmm. sort of just establishing little stories for this character. And it, it could have gone on in that vein with him going on little one-off adventures sort of episodically. But this is where it gets into a not only a larger, you know, chapter in its own right, but also getting into the larger overall story. Right. The uh, Whenever Puck first sees the Dragon Slayer, it's either the narrator or Puck. I'm pretty sure it's the narrator. Uh, it says it's much too big to be called a sword, you know. It's like a raw heap of iron. And that, that thing is repeated again in this, in this section, uh, after he uses it on the soldiers. The narrator kind of steps in and kind of says the same thing. Makes you wonder about how this was published. If, if this was intended to be sort of like the first of it. And if you caught up before, that's great. But this is the, the start of a new, a new story, you know. If they marketed it that way. I know that's just a mundane detail, but the fact that the motif was repeated made me wonder about that. Uh, I think they were just reiterating it, like, again, yeah, like, if you were just picking up here, that's fine, you know, but also to sort of, you know, it works if you've read it before, because it's like, obviously, they want to draw attention to the specialness of the sword and reinforce that idea in your head, like, okay, this is a, this is going to be a recurring theme, you know, and we see it again with other, whenever anyone sees the Dragon Slayer for the first time, and they're not expecting it, there's always that, oh, wow, you know, you can't even call it a sword, (laughs) so, Yeah. yeah. Actually, we get very early, even in the bar, you know, we get to see people's, you know, reaction yeah. shots, you know, where they're like, oh! <laughs> what was that again? <laughs> they, what, can you repeat that? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm, um... Yeah, you're not interested, alright, you can say it. Well, you know, fuck you. <laughs> no, no, you, you misunderstood. I was, I was actually trying to milk you for time, because I was, I was looking for something else on the internet. Like, say, oh, well, so, I have many things to say, you know, like, you... <laughs> 
<laughs> you guys said these, these uh, early episodes are boring, but I disagree. I think it's all pretty. I didn't say oh, that. I love I did. I said that. Yeah, well, you said, well, you know, fuck you again. No, seriously. Okay. No, I, I like these things. I think the the part where he goes in and uh, disrupts the execution of the woman is, you know, it's pretty cool, you know, the way he just, you know, like he uses a, the blood from his brain to, you know, like, you know, yeah. slice across his mouth, uh, his throat, you know, that kind of stuff. And the way the, the count, you know, like, how to say, he caves the skull in, you know, it's pretty crazy shit. I mean, I don't know. I think it's pretty, you know, again... You see many of these shots, you know, like the head being thrown to the count or when he's running after that, you know, and uh, you see there's a shot of him running and you see the shadow being reflected on the inside of a tunnel, you know, under a bridge or something. Uh, you know, this stuff is pretty crazy. I mean, you know, sure, you know, when you compare it to, you know, current shots where it's just all of it is insanely detailed and everything, it's not, it's less impressive, but... You know, when you take it and just, you know, you know, think about it for what it is for at the time, for such a thing, you know, a lot of these shots are pretty, pretty crazy, you know, and, uh, I don't know, I'm pretty impressed with that. And, uh, same thing goes with that scene with him fighting the knights, you know, I think it's, uh, it's a good show, you know, uh, of him just, you know, fighting a standard opponents, you know, which we didn't necessarily see much of before, you know, like these are, you know, knights in armors and he's just slicing through like they're nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, an interesting detail to me, like if you're just like uh, Walter was saying, looking at all the little panels, is when the Count first sees the brand on her forehead, it actually shocks him. Like he looks genuinely freaked out or even scared, you know, like either his secret yeah. is out or, you know, he doesn't know what it is. And then, of course, he can spot Guts, who does the little, you know, the, the throat cut motion, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, literally with blood going across his neck from the brand. So a lot of added significance there. And then he sort of recovers and brushes it off and laughs like, you know, oh, you know, this is great. But I mean, it, it, it does get his attention and throw him yeah. off. Yeah, at yeah first. definitely. So Guts does make him, you know, just initially feel fear. Well, it's like we were saying earlier is that uh, the Black Souls man is not, yeah. you know, it's not, you know, something they take lightly. Like even though he's just a human and so they despise him, they still know he's out there hunting apostles. Yeah. yeah. Again, there's also, <clears throat> Go ahead. No, I was saying, there's also a shot, uh, you know, when he's fighting these knights, you know, like some guys are trying to fight, to, you know, fire crossbows at him and, uh, Puck intervenes, you know, he uses his Puck spark, you know, attack or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, it's the first time, and it's actually, again, uh, interesting to see that so early in the series, you see Guts, you know, uh, Puck helping Guts many times, you know, not just healing him, but bringing yeah. him keys to sell, you know, helping him in battle, you know. So very early in the series, you know, that motif of Guts, you know, uh, being helped by Puck is already, you know, set up. And it immediately yeah. becomes uh, symbiotic because, you know, Puck is uh, kind of grandstanding afterwards, you know, telling yeah. him, you know, you owe me. And like, you know, the, guy, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the soldier grabs him and Guts chops his hands off. <laughs> you know, so he immediately kind of, you know, intentionally or not pays him back. So it, it was interesting yeah. from there on the relationship, you know, will continue to be this sort of tumultuous uh, symbiotic one where they help each other. Yeah, I'm, 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 I am a little glad they got past their kind of awkward stage, you know, pretty quickly. And by the time they do this section, they're a little, a little more friendly towards each other. Yeah. This, this section. So at the end of the, uh, chapter, um, Fargus comes in and, uh, throws a smoke bomb, rescues guts. Wait, and, you, uh, you, you, we haven't talked about the greatest Zondark yet. <laughs> I, I, I completely skipped past him. He's just a big uh, guy in armor. You know, yeah, but well, that's who a cares? Secret. 
I Dude, he's going to develop into a major uh, guy who gets killed. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, you know, I think it also serves a purpose, you know, in that so far Gus is just, like, he's he this big like guy. Yeah, he's this big guy with a sword and he's like, you know, okay, he can slice his, you know, losers, you know, easily. But now comes a guy who's even bigger, who's fully armored, who's got, you know, this, you know, big weapon as well. And so it gets to show that Gus, not only is, is he not impressed but he also, you know, you know, like, you know, gets rid of him very easily. So the, the point is, it shows this early on that Gus is not just about, you know, brute strength and, you know, just having a huge sword. He's also, you know, very skilled, you know, he's a very skilled yeah. swordsman. He actually gets developed in volume two, you know, where when Zone Dark, you know, comes back again as a, you know, pseudo apostle and, uh, and, and Gus, you know, Ah, and Gus can deflect his attacks, you know, that's what, you know, Puck reflects on. So, I think it's important, you know, it, it's uh, the first time that Guts, you know, shows that he's got, you know, real skill, you know. I think it and, also uh, shows how Guts has a way with people because he really rubs on Dark the Wrong. Yeah. Way. Like, he's yeah. good at pissing bullies off, too. Stepping on his face and everything. Because, I mean, this, this character trope comes back again and again and again with the Dawn and, you know, just numerous big fat jerks, you know, fat heads that come in and tell Guts, like, oh, you're so, you know, you're not so great, we'll show you. And then Guts, you know, will cut their brains off, you know, like out of their head, literally, or yeah. something, you know, equally horrible to shut them up. So, but, uh, I mean, it's uh, just, he's the first. <laughs> well, he used the same, kind of the same tactic as he did with uh, uh, Bazuzo, with he slices the... The weapon yeah. and through the yeah. Well, it's not exactly the same. I know yeah. it's not exactly, but the, the shrapnel is ultimately what gets them really. And it's also the person who dismisses him is like, "Oh, you just got that big sword. Well, now you've yeah. met your match." And it's like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> uh, so Vargas comes in and rescues guts from that scene uh, after after more and more guards are coming. And sure, he could probably slide through them like trolls, but uh, you know, at some well, point, actually, you know, I think it's just the fact that he was captured so easily. In uh, the snake bear in the first episode, well, like, you know, like ten guys showed up and it was like, oh, you totally screwed. There's no way out of this. <laughs> well, I, I think you know that scene uh, and even this scene. It's interesting to show that Gus was, you know, kind of reckless. You know, like you know, there are so many guards. Like maybe not with a, with a count. You know, I mean, in this scene, he might have been able to just you know get through them and just leave. But you know, with the snake baron, I think it's. Um, I, I'm, I'm not too bothered by the fact he was captured, you know, because you see many guys in the background, but he could be like surrounded by, I don't know, 200 people or something. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think? If George Lucas edited it, he'd add like CGI stormtroopers into the background to make it more <laughs> believable. <laughs> well, well, yeah, we don't see. Maybe there are some guys on the roof or whatever, no, you like know, with well, it's just mm-hmm. one of these things where, again, I think it's just, I think it's a symptom of it being like so early on that Guts was, you know, there hadn't been so much precedent for Guts getting out of literally, you know, I mean, Everything. at the point we're at, he can, yeah, he can literally get out of or do anything. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of soldiers here when he gets captured in the, the first episode. I mean, you can count like, you know, two dozen, but it's one of these things where it's like, well, wait a minute, we know he killed a hundred guys. You know? Right. Yeah. So it's just, you know, again, with, uh, with the foresight we have, yeah, it, it doesn't make sense now. But I mean, it was fine, you know. And maybe he intended to be captured, you know, to lure in the guy, you know. Maybe it was part of his plan all along. Yeah, talk to the mayor and get some <laughs> intel. <laughs> and uh, the interesting about Vargas is, you know, he's this weird, disfigured guy. He used to be the doctor of the count, 
And uh, what's interesting about him is that, you know, he's seen an apostle firsthand and, and lived to tell about it, which is similar to Guts. And, and just like Guts as well, he's also bent on revenge and pretty much absorbs him. And he's been, you know, collecting, you know, the Behirat and trying to wait for the right time to strike. It's all very similar to Guts. And I, and I wonder if that happens to lots of humans that get caught up in the affairs of that God Hand and the Apostle, if that's like kind of the uh, the inevitable cycle that you get into after you've been disfigured or horrified or hurt by Apostles. And, I mean, he's this interesting character because, I mean, he's an ally and everything, but he's also kind of creepy and Guts is, you know, yeah. disgusted by him. He's a, he's a mirror of Guts, you know, he's been literally and figuratively twisted by his desire for revenge. He's deformed right, yeah. and disfigured as well, you know, which guts it's not as obvious, you know, but you, you know, we've already seen the scene where he sees his, you know, his arm being gone, you know, in the nightmare and, you know, he so for that he yeah. just has an extra layer of, you know, <laughs> hatred for uh, Vargas and contempt. And I also imagine Var- Vargas being sort of like Peter Lorre, like <laughs> if you know who I'm talking about, like a Peter Lorre character from the Maltese Falcon, sort of a Sleazy, scummy guy. This is going to be something oh. Walter's going to have to include in the in the thread. <laughs> but uh, I just imagine that kind of voice and that kind of character from him. When you like, you also see the room, you know, like Vargas' room, it's it's filled with you know jars in, it, in which there are you know aborted fetuses which are deformed, you know. Yeah, there's skulls. There's yeah. yeah. There's an elf in a jar, you know. So <laughs> guy. Oh, yeah, probably, right. you know, there's fetuses in there and you know guts and all sorts of weird stuff. <laughs> yeah. I kept looking for a mandragora, but I was hoping for too much. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, and then it ends uh, with the Behirat. Uh, obviously, he has the Count's Behirat. And he does directly- have, you know, he does have a, the skeleton of a harpy or something of the sort on a wall, you know, in a panel. Oh, which yeah? Is, uh, which I guess is like, you know, foreseen for, you know, Falconia and Fantasia, you know. Of course. It was planned all along. Yep, I figured it would be, just like that. Yeah, I was reading Volume 1 and I was like, yep. <laughs> that is all I had planned. Obviously, the episode ends abruptly with the Behirat and, um. Well, I, I think, back. you know, the reveal of the Behirat is a big deal, actually. I think it's a good way to end the volume. You know, like, like I was saying earlier, the spacing, where like every main thing is revealed, you know, little by little. And, uh, I think, uh, yeah, the Behirat being the last thing, you know, on the page is, uh, is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, it is, it's one of these rare instances where the volume ends in a logical point, a logical jump off point, where a lot of times it feels a little arbitrary. Uh, it is nice to have a bookend piece like that, the introduction of a major element of the series. Uh, obviously we don't learn about it until the next issue, but, uh, you know, visually we've already been introduced to it. That's all the time I have, guys. If you guys want to keep talking, I know I gotta get out of here and Griff, you gotta head out pretty soon too. Yeah. But, um, again, you know, I, I try to put some thought into how this would go and so maybe, I just, I'm not sure we can do this for all 37 volumes. You know, maybe we'll pick and choose sections of the series to do this too. I intend to do the reread through volume till the end of the count story and maybe we'll dip into the end of the volume three as well for Guts Childhood. But I, I just, I really don't want to get into, you know, stuck in doing rereads throughout the entire series. Cause like, at a certain extent, I feel, I think the series is self-evident. And so I kind of wanted to only cover the parts that stuck out to me as highlights or, or things I didn't notice before, those kind of things. Whereas 
you know, I'm not going to go page by page as far as each individual development. Well, so. you know, I feel like we could sort of drop it and pick it back up whenever we want. Like, you know, sure. if you wanted to stop it, you know, volume three or four, like go ahead and do that. And then if like we could do like, you know, maybe some uh, we'll have some new episodes by then and, you know, just something else to talk about or a specific subject that interests us or even jump around. Like if something happens that makes it look like, hey, let's do go back and look at volume whatever. You could take right. care of it then, and they could be a little out of order, since it ultimately I'd, will matter. I'd be I'd be cool with that. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to go in sequence. I just figure we start somewhere. We yeah. start from the beginning. It's also been so long since I actually had reread through Volume One. A lot of times, I'll just peek through these volumes for something specifically, but reading it in sequence is a, obviously a different experience. So yeah. But that's where we're going to leave it today, guys. Thanks for joining us again, and stay tuned for video game and book talk after this segment. I've been playing a game called Steam World Dig, but I don't have like a lot to say about it. Yeah, I beat that uh, a couple months back. It's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Kind of takes a what you know some good parts of Minecraft and a little bit of Terraria as well. And uh, what I like about that game is that it's got some charm to it. I mean, the characters are well designed. You know, the story's not much, but it's just enough to keep you interested, I guess. And it varies it. It's just it's a short little game that's you know neatly packaged. I think it's it's pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, you know another thing about those games that usually get stale is your sense of progression. You know you kind of hit the high points early on in those kind of games, but this game constantly is upping the scale at which you know things happen, like the the speed at which you dig, the kinds of materials you come across. It's all laid out pretty well. It's a pretty neat little game. Yeah, I agree with the pacing. I I'm not. Uh... I don't know. I think I, I'm not too far from the end, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. My estimations could be wrong, but yeah, it's pretty fun so far, and I think it's well, well paced. Maybe a, a bit expensive, but you know, I'd rather what, support what was the it, guys. Was it ten bucks? I forgot. Uh, well, I paid something like eight euros. Okay. So yeah, that would be the equivalent. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I think it was maybe spent maybe three or four hours on it, but uh, it was a fun three or four hours, and uh, I kind of I do wish it was kind of long, but what happened was. The game came out to no reception at all, and then it started getting word started spreading from there, and then it became like a huge hit on the eShop. So the guy said, "I will port it to PC." So now it's on Steam. It came out like yeah. two weeks ago. So I actually saw it on Steam, and uh, when I saw it, it was a 3DS game. Yeah, I like went back and bought it on 3DS. I had seen it uh, in the eShop before, but you know, I just you know I passed on it, mm-hmm. and I just went back and bought it because I'd rather play. I'd rather really play any game on the 3DS rather than any other platform, you know, because I can play from my bed, you know, and, um, mm-hmm. like, it's comfortable. So, yeah. Also, having the physical controller for a, a, any kind of platformer is always going to be better. Like, you know, I've, I've played Terraria on the PC a little bit, and it's really a pain to do, you know, WASD with the mouse and, and the space bar to jump. It, it's like you're playing some kind of like, it's like you're playing Commander Keen in the early 90s. It just doesn't yeah. make any sense by today's standards as far as the controls. Well, I whenever I play it. That, uh, concerning that, actually, because you'll appreciate this. Okay. Uh, my dad, when he played uh, Dark Souls. Oh, no. He played it keyboard. Wow. And, like, good on it. <laughs> he's like, and his character is like over level 100 or, you know, I don't even comprehend it. But I mean, he's like totally good with yeah. the mouse and keyboard on it. And I told him like, really? I, 
not supposed to be that way. But that's, <laughs> well, that's if, what imagine I, imagine playing Zelda sixty four like that on the keyboard. That, it would be like that. I, mean, I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> You've done that before, really? Oh man! Yeah, I think I have. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, like I said, like it can be done, sure. And that's about, you know, of course, that's the default control scheme if you're on yeah. the PC until you plug in a controller and it's like, oh, thank God you have a controller plugged yeah. in, you know. Well, he's never been a controller guy. Yeah, so, sure. I mean, even when he played uh, Infinite Space on the 3DS, I mean, it's it's touchscreen. <laughs> yeah. so, he, he plugged in a keyboard. Yeah, he plugged in an external keyboard, Bluetooth. <laughs> but, uh, it's so, an yeah, interesting just, point, though, because, like, you know, I didn't get a 360 controller for my PC until uh, Dark Souls <laughs> And I mean, I use it for, I mean, I'm not going to say every game, but any game that's not a first person shooter that has a controller option, I always use the control pad for. It's really useful. And the fact that it's wireless is just so much less cumbersome than, you know, what I used to have, which was like a PS2 controller with a USB adapter to my, you know, it was just a big hassle, but this is nice. Well, I think for him, it's like Guts said, you know, he has to go into battle with a weapon his hand is used to. You know, sort of like he, you know, he's been keyboard pretty much. I think the last time he really used a controller was Nintendo. Yeah. So, yeah, so he plays everything keyboard. So to him, it's just much more awkward using a keypad. But for us, I mean, usually preferable. Sure. I mean, for first-person shooters and things like that, obviously, I'm always going to prefer yeah. keyboard. Do you remember, though, like... um I remember when I used to go to coffee shops in the mid nineties, you know, doing land parties and stuff. And, uh, there was Duke Nukem Forever came out. Not Duke Nukem Forever, of course not. Duke Nukem 3D was out. And, yeah. uh, that was the, that was the first game I saw people had just started to use the mouse for as far as mouse aiming. People were using mouse aiming for that. And I looked at that and thought, what the hell is the point? I'm so much quicker with the keyboard, you know, because at the time I was trained on like Doom 2 and I was really, you know, when I was 13 or so, I was really good at that, you know, but I couldn't imagine using a mouse for movement. And, and people at the time were using hilarious move, move, movement method, like holding right click would be moving forward. That's the default mouse yeah. controls, you know? So you'd constantly oh, be right click. And then, um, you can, um, I think, it, I think you held alt and you could move your mouse left and right to strafe. It was really awkward. It was like using a trackball. We it hadn't just, figured it out yet. <laughs> right. And then I think it was around Quake that it suddenly it clicked like, oh, okay, mouse look can actually be useful for this, you know. It's like if we combine the two, right. then, you know, it's like, oh, wow, this is awesome. But it took a while to get there. Yeah. I mean, I, ever since then, I, I can't imagine playing a first-person shooter with a keyboard. So uh, what else? What else? Um, I'm Did anyone totally max out uh, A Link Between Worlds? I gave up around oh. the time of the uh, fourth dungeon and the um, the Dark World on Hero Mode. I gave uh, up. What about just in regular mode, or did you just jump right to Hero Mode? Oh, I just jumped right to Hero Mode. I, okay. I, here's the thing. like, Yeah, I, I could have hunted down more of those Mai Mais, but like, the thing is that I didn't feel that much of an improvement with the new items. So oh, I just man. Gave Some up on of them it. are like, it's really cool, actually. I mean, like, if you're already I, to all done with the game, it's not really. there's not really any point. Yeah. But uh, some of the weapons, I mean, it really just... They're, the, they're basically the most powerful you know, Zelda weapons you're ever going to get. Hmm. So, I mean, it's kind of fun in that sense. You know, when I was thinking of this as sort of like a Zelda game for veterans of the series, letting them, you know, sort of giving them the freedom to do whatever they want and yeah. providing them these not-too-difficult-to-get uh, weapons. Like I, didn't, weapons. I didn't quite get it, though. I mean, because I, I think I upgraded almost all of them. The only ones that didn't were the hammer... And the uh, little, the windmill, sorry, the air one. 
I got everything else. I got the, the, like, the, the rods are, are pretty powerful. Yeah, the, the rods. Rod. Yeah. The wind rod is actually really worth upgrading too, especially is, for those uh, battle modes. What does it do? Uh, it'll basically create a whirlwind, you know, that covers the screen and you know knocks everything out, and oh, you can wow. just kill it. So it'd yeah. be really valuable in hero mode. And the rest of grade is also pretty cool. You know, it makes your sword uh, whirlwind a lot more. Like the range yeah. is huge; it takes half the screen. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah, I heard there was something like that. I never actually saw it in action because it requires you to get all 100, which is like, no, I'm not going to be doing that. Well, it's pretty quick, honestly. Yeah, well, that's cool. I'm glad one of you guys got. It. Did Griff? Did you go that far down? Yeah, I got. I went nuts, but I and and I even got all the the achievements in the battle mode. Oh my god, all those yeah. things! <laughs> yeah, killing killing someone with a golden bee and all that shit. Oh so. my god! <laughs> but it's just like acid. It wasn't that hard, you know. <laughs> I didn't put that much effort into it, although I did. But so I don't know. It was fun, but. I think I'll take a break and then do hero mode later so it'll all be uh, fresh again. Sure. Fresh the third time. <laughs> uh, what did you think? Yeah, what did you guys think of going through it? Because, you know, whenever we talked last time, you guys had just finished the first one. And uh, I, went, I, was on, I was back for round two. What did you think of, you know, playing it further than you had before? Um, I, just, I haven't played it since then. Okay. <laughs> I threw it away. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> No, hero mode. I'm. Uh, I beat the first dungeon in hero mode, mm-hmm. and I'm not. Exa- I think I'm basically just, you know, at the point where I can choose whether I go to the House of Gales or to the, the one on the mountain. Mm-hmm. And I'm just sort of there. I've been, you know, I was jumping between that and, you know, leveling everything up and maxing everything in normal mode. I wanted to actually ask you guys a question last time that I forgot about. Like considering, you know, how enjoyable the game was and everything. Would you have preferred like a straight remake in this with this engine of A Link to the Past, or are you happy with this, like with this sort of update? Um, it's kind of something new. I would or, have, you know, I, I I like it better that way than a straight remake. But I would have liked it better had it been less remakey. I guess if that makes sense. Well, like I guess a, what I'm saying is, is I mean, I don't know. Would you would you like it better? I mean, just because I mean, it's sort of in between. It's kind of a half measure. Would you have preferred if it had been all the way a remake or just something totally different? Totally different for me. Yeah, yeah, them. same. Totally different. I would have you know, preferred it. Even though I love the engine and everything, I think uh, if they had made more of an effort to introduce new stuff, I mean, I, I would have preferred that. Mm-mm. I almost feel like in their thinking and their thought process in creating this game, at some point along the line, they're mm-hmm. like, well, we're, since we're using the same perspective as Link to the Past... We may as well mirror other elements. You know what? Let's make it a sequel. Like to me, it's not the, the perspective shouldn't limit, you know, where the game takes place and things. Like the perspective is just the way the game's presented. It can be a totally different game. You know. Well, well the other you know, sort of falsehood there is that they've been they've still been making games in that style on all the handhelds, the you know, Minish Cap and uh, that was Capcom. The, well, I mean, I think that. Uh, what's his name? The main creator. He was still involved with that, even though really. The Capcom team, yeah, I think he did go oh. and have some involvement with it. But I mean, it's just one of the. I mean, these games were, they still existed, you know. Even the, yeah. the stylus controlled games were still that look down style, mm-hmm. kind of dungeon crawling. So I mean, I don't know. I mean, it really is sort of an attempt at like the return to glory. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I still well, feel looking back now. I still do feel a little, a little awkward about the link to the past thing. 
just as I did when it first got announced. Just when it was it's like, oh, we're making a Link to the Past game, but it's not really Link to the Past. Like, well, what is it, you know? I'd, I'd rather, even now, I'd rather they have just made their own thing. Mm. Well, you know, having read the interviews, uh, you know, it strikes me as if they were like, oh, we made all new dungeons, so we can just reuse the overworld map, you know? Like, <laughs> you know, they, they really but, were, they, they were saying it like that, like, oh yeah, we reuse the overworld map, but you know, the, the dungeons are all new, so it's like, doesn't feel like they really cared much about, you know, that. That's what disappointed me. I think we talked about it a bit last time too, but, you know, I think their mindset, you know, is, is like that. Like they made a new mechanic, they made new dungeons, and, uh, you know, oh well, the rest, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But if they had done that, would we be talking about it as much, or would it have been like spirit tracks or something? Mm. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I've, for, I'm the one here that's played spirit tracks, and I can guarantee you it would not be that. Oh. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that game yeah. You know, that's, that's one of the games I really, really tried over and over and over to like. Like, I tried it and I said, fuck no. And I put it down. Then I'd pick it back up a couple months later. A year later, I'd try it again. Like, no, no, this is just shitty, you know. You know, the problem was about, you know, the mechanics. Like, you know, they had done the boat thing, you know, two times. And they were like, well, let's do a train now. Yeah, and you know, my my God, who the fuck had this stupid idea? You know, <laughs> it's not even just the trains though. Like, if you took, if you ripped the train mechanic right out of the game, it would still be really lame and poorly designed. Every, yeah, everything else about the game is shitty. So I shouldn't I, I, get this game for Christmas, is what you're saying. <laughs> I will gladly give you my copy. I don't want it in my house anymore. <laughs> I've offered it to Azil once, and he was like, "No, nah, that's okay." <laughs> yeah, yeah, anything but that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, I've actually, speaking of bad games, I went back and tried to play Paper Mario on 3DS. This is something I bought about a year ago now. Uh, I, I didn't like it. Some, similar to Spirit Tracks, I gave it a chance, didn't like it, tried it again, didn't like it. I'm trying it now, just sort of playing it in the background and not really paying much attention to it. It's, it's okay. It's, it, the, the trouble is, it's not as fun as any of the other Paper Mario games, so it feels like a real wasted effort, but, uh, it's okay. It's not really terrible, but, uh, it's a, it's a fun time waster, I guess, uh. But it's nothing really that special. Uh, nothing else has really happened for me game wise. I haven't been playing a lot. Um, kind of been pricing PS3 so I can get Demon Souls. I'm sure anyone that is browsing that thread has seen people say, "You should get a PS3, Walter. You should get one for Demon Souls." Like, yeah, I'll get one one day. I'm waiting for sub one hundred dollars, and I'll probably pounce on it. But, uh, Wasn't that when they're going to bring out the Demon Souls, you know, compilation, you know, <laughs> like for another platform? I don't think they're going to return to Demon Souls, particularly because of licensing issues. I think Sony has a handle on Demon Souls now, and Namco mm. is the owner of. Okay, so Dark it would Souls. be like PS4 anyway if they uh, if they did re-release it. Yeah, I, I don't think they're going to re-release it. They're probably more likely going to make a sequel to it. Uh, beyond that, I don't really know. Uh, that's the one everyone keeps hinting at. Uh, the, the the creator of Demon Souls and Dark Souls is not on for Demon Souls or sorry, Dark Souls Two. He's on he's on for a different project. That people either assume it's a whole new IP or a Demon Souls two. So I think it's a it's a new IP, honestly, because if you remember back then, like he was forced out of the project, and uh, specifically by the like the director of uh, from software, and mm-hmm. it was the CEO specifically because they wanted him, you know, to not just focus on one series and instead to move on to something else. So yeah. I don't think it'd be just to do Demon Souls two. I, I I don't really. That's not where my heart is either. I, that was just that's just become the chatter of where he, what he's work where he's working. But I agree. It seems unlikely that he would, you know, make yet another of these games. And don't get me wrong, I love it. But 
a third or fourth and fifth, it really would be with returning to the well. Maybe he should make a sequel yeah. to Dark Souls, but with the same maps. Like, you know, <laughs> just that. You, but you go walk on the walls now. Yeah. I am curious to see what that guy comes up with beyond Dark Souls, because he, he seems like a really smart guy. Well, I sure hope for Kingsfield 7. Mm, yeah, Kingsfield 7. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, too, it's too boring a topic to discuss in this podcast, but after I got into Dark Souls, I started looking into YouTube videos of Kingsfield. Oh. And, uh, wow, that game. I mean, there's, there's some hilarious similarities between the two, actually, the two projects. But, uh, Kingsfield looks like a real mess. Now, you know, lo- looking back on it now. It's, uh, I remember when I, I played it with a friend of mine because I myself never had the patience for it, but mm-hmm. he was insane. And so he, you know, powers through it. And I, I mostly just, you know, I mean, we, we did it together. Anyway, the thing is, that game had really great ideas. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 you know, Kingsfield 2 Japanese version and Kingsfield 1 on, uh, European and, uh, in the US. And, uh, it, it has great ideas, but the gameplay was shit. I remember thinking at the time that, you know, if they, if only they got the gameplay right, like, you know, it, it could be, you know, something really good. And I guess they did, you know, it just took, you know, them 50 years and, uh, yeah, something, something related to that was when I've, I've seen interviews to the effect where, they were talking about why they created Dark Souls and Demon Souls the way they did. Like, actually, they said it was a result of us basically making another King's Quest game, but we wanted to speed up the gameplay a lot. So it's just everything's – you have a much more control, freedom of control, but the, the the pace at which you move through the game and attack and things like that are just, like, way enhanced. But the yeah, world – the, the idea horrible. of the world and the – you know, all the – some similarities to the lore as well. You can tell there's some uh, kind of cut from the same cloth to a certain extent. Yeah, the fact you can kill the NPCs. There you go. You know, yeah. <laughs> to the point of actually fucking you up and you can't finish the game, you know, like because you've killed the only guy who can duplicate the key, yeah. you need to get Ooh. to the later areas, you know, that kind of shit. Reminds me of the Fallout discussion we were having in the Oh, semester. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I guess that's worth talking about as well since people have been talking, well, me and yeah. Death May Die have been talking about it. Um I mean, I, I like I, what didn't come across in the thread is that I have played all those games. I have played all of Fallout Three. I played most of the DLC. I played all of New Vegas. I've played yeah. fucking Oblivion and Skyrim. But I just think, I mean, I think uh, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Dark Link had posted. Basically, yeah, I've played all those games too, but I found them pretty boring because the engine is so limiting, limiting in what you can do. It gives you the false sense that you're exploring this grand world, and and in fact, you are. But your level of interaction with that world is so shallow that you get bored of that uh, journey really, really soon into it, and then beyond that, it's just a slog. Uh, yeah, I got tired of insulting people and threatening them, and then when I yeah. came back to talk to them again, they just were like back at default. Hi. Yeah, well, it's that. ridiculous. Yeah, like you can get. I, th- I think you can get like into a sword fight with someone and maim someone, walk away, and then come back, and they're like, "Hello, citizen." You know, it's just it's just weird. The whole game's weird. But, uh, yeah, I've played those games. And as far as Fallout, I just got bored of the whole, like, the, the look of the world, which didn't bother me in previous Fallout games, really. You know, it's... Oh, conceit, I guess. Like, yeah. well, I mean, how did New Vegas... Com- compare New Vegas, you know, to Fallout 1 and 2 versus Fallout 3. Because mm. that's supposed to be, like, the more... That's the legitimate successor by the Black uh, Island guys. It's more, it, it fits a little, uh, it's like a glove that fits a little better in terms of the world design and the actual execution of the, of the quests and things like that. Because all this, yeah, exactly. All the side quests are a little more interesting. They have more hooks in them than 
with Fallout 3, it's really almost all the quests are super basic, super straightforward. This guy might be Don't a vampire. In Guess a post-apocalyptic what? future. It's yeah. like, yep, okay. <laughs> like, there's, there's this quest in Fallout 3 where this guy, I mean, essentially he's like a ghoul or a vamp, you know, uh, the, the game's version of a vampire, basically. And uh, it's like, oh, maybe he is. And then guess what? The hook is he is. Yeah, he is a, a ghoul in the end. What do you know? Surprise. Uh, New Vegas is just a little more polished, but it's still wonky as hell because of the engine troubles. Um, I had, I, I probably had more fun with New Vegas, but it still amounted to just a little bit more. You know, uh, I think some, one of the first areas of the game you get uh, Deckard's gun from Blade Runner, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> things like that, small little things yeah. like that are fun. I mean, I got New Vegas with the expectation that it's like, oh, it's the real Fallout 3, but I, I don't know, I just, because I'd already played Fallout 3 yeah. and gotten, so I was, you know, I wasn't blown away by the engine anymore and just like, it, just the different way the world was represented. Yeah. And, you know, it, yet I was still trapped in that engine, so it was like, you know, all the bad, none of the awe-inspiring stuff from, you know, the first time I played in that uh, world. Yeah. That world. The game definitely has its moments. I mean, to me, emerging from the vault and fallout three to the wasteland is still yeah. one of the greatest moments of that generation. I thought that, I thought that was fantastic. Uh, but yeah, once you actually start walking around and realizing the scope of the game is actually going to give you, yeah, it gets kind of boring pretty quick. Yeah. I mean, and it's still, I mean, it blew me away. It was still, I mean, just the, the magnitude of I'm playing Fallout, you know, in a yeah. first person 3D thing, just like I always wanted. So that, that really kept it going for a while until I, by the end, I was totally embittered, but it was still good starting yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, that being said, I don't really look forward to Fallout 4 because I'm sure it's another Bethesda game and they're going to do exactly what they did with Fallout 3. Just what's the Skyrim engine? Is it, okay, yeah, I see what you're doing here. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Skyrim engine is still Gamebryo. It's just sort of enhanced. I mean, what I want them to do is take the id Tech 5, which is just sitting on a shelf after Rage, and actually put that to good use in a larger world, but then they haven't done that. I'm not, not sure they ever will. It looks like it is imploding on itself with Carmack leaving. Or having gone now, actually. Didn't Rage uh, delay, what is it? Doom 4? Doom 4. I was thinking like Diablo 4. <laughs> they're both the ones that sort of fell on. You know, the third time was not the charm. Yeah. Uh, Doom 4 three. probably isn't going to happen. It's been reset. Anymore? It's been reset at least once, maybe twice at this point. You know, some well, that was sort of like what happened with Doom 3, wasn't it? I don't remember. I wasn't really in the news. I think there was some point. false starts. And then, uh, you know, then it's like, well, if we release it as a tech demo, we can do it. And <laughs> that's what they did. I mean, I think it's been living off the glory of their past for almost a decade now, you know. Have you seen Quake 3? Yeah. Did yeah. play Quake 4? <laughs> oh, no. You know, I didn't even know Quake 4 had come out until it was. I got, I got that ago. from my dad. It really was like Doom 3 too. <laughs> like... <laughs> Yeah, that's too bad because they're they were one of my favorite companies growing up, of course. And to, to look back, you know, I took like a gaming hiatus for a while, and then came back and kind of saw that it had fallen off the map, and it's like oh, that's too bad. Oh well. Um, I don't really have much more to say about games. Like I said, I haven't been playing a lot. It's more about just kind of following news and posting on forums and stuff. Yeah. But uh, someone had suggested um, if we could talk about some of yeah. our favorite books. I think it was Incantation. Uh, the thing is, like, I don't think we can make us a regular segment. I mean, I wouldn't mind sharing some of my favorite books, but I don't think it's something I could talk about, like, every time. I mean, my list of favorite books probably can amount to, like, five or six, you know, the ones that I would care to mention, really. And I'm not going to ask you guys to, like, exhaustively 
go through your favorite books. Just like, you know, talk about some of the ones that, you know, stuck out to you growing up and things like that. Um, for, go ahead if you were going to say something. Sorry. Well, I don't know. I wasn't going to say anything, I was, but uh, I was clearing my throat. <laughs> oh, I heard, it was like it was the sound people oh, make when it's like got one. Okay. Rain of Gold by uh, Victor Villanueva <laughs> is one of my favorite books. I actually read it in middle school. It was it was the one book I read in first school that like hooked me. And I actually like wrote like a hundred pages like summarizing the whole book for a project. Got a ton of extra credit too for this, and it, it was just a great book. It really. Uh, really was good i really enjoyed it i recommend it to anybody it's sort of uh and he's got a bunch of other books in a similar vein that are also good so i would just say to look into that i mean i don't know if i'm supposed to give you guys a book report on it no absolutely not <laughs> all right so that's one and uh also i'd recommend all the conan stories if you want a different kind of fantasy than what we're than what's the norm today yeah i mean you, uh, griff gifted me uh one of the big conan books it's a compilation of Robert Jordan's, not Robert Jordan, sorry. Uh, Howard. Howard, sorry, Robert Howard's books. It's very cool stuff. Uh, I remember thinking at the time, it's, it is sort of like, you know, pulpy berserk, you know, to, and that, and of course that, that is what it is. It's a fantasy pulp, basically. And yeah, you can sort of see some berserk in there for sure. Um, one of the first books I really, really felt, you know, head first into was, uh, Neil Gaiman's, uh, Neverwhere. I probably read that book. That was the first book I read where I really didn't want it to end. And as it was coming to a close, I, I really just didn't want the story to end. And I, you know, further readings into it didn't give me quite the same feeling. Uh, reading that book now, it, it is a little embarrassing and a little sentimental. Uh, but that's, you know, that's two decades after I first read it. So of course that's going to happen. But, um, I really like that was one of the first books I really loved. Um, the next book that I can think of probably is, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Which is a sort of a Victorian fantasy book um, that's written in that same. It's, it's written as if it was written in that period. So it takes place in the early 1800s, and it's written like a serial that was written at, during those years. So it has that kind of hook to it. But uh, I, I've read that book. No kidding, probably three or four times now, and it came out in 2004. Really, one of my favorite books. Um, there's nothing super like thematically significant to it. It's not, I, it's certainly not what I would call literature, but it is, you know, super addictive to read and very fun to read. So that's, that's why I keep returning to it. Probably like once every couple of years, I'll listen to the audiobook or I'll continue reading the actual book. Uh, and Azil turned me on to Dune about three years ago. I had never read it. Of course, I'd seen the, the David Lynch movie, and I didn't really quite see what the big deal was. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> but he said I should read the book, and you know, I didn't like it at first, but around halfway through, I was just in love. Like everything about the book, like the, to the language, to the, the structure, to the, the depth of everything happening, on the, the, the scale of all the events that are happening and, and how they tie into events that happen later on in the series, all the, the hints at things to come. Uh, I'm, it's a fantastic book, start to finish. And probably one of my favorite, probably my favorite sci-fi. And that came out of nowhere, you know, I think I was like 25 or 26 when I read it. You know, I'd read a large body of work of sci-fi to, to have not, to having not touched Doom, Dune until late in my life. It, it seems weird to the, that, that that trumps everything else that I've read, but it, it totally does. Well, it is pretty awesome. Yeah. I've read it twice or three times now. It's one of those things I keep coming back to. I'll actually just, Sometimes turn to a page if I pass by and grab it, open it up, and just be amazed at uh, 
the way the guy writes. It's just a really unique uh, style he has, for sure. Yeah. He was an engineer, you know, before yeah. being a, a writer. Have you read the, the sequels? I tried reading the sequel and uh, Prophecy of Dune, I think it is. Um, uh, yeah, there's, there's a, yeah. It, it, didn't, it didn't quite do what I had hoped it would do. It gets a little bogged down in the mundanity yeah. of the ruling the Empire. Yeah, and, and, and doing the first book, it's it's like it's so widespread in, in terms of the areas it covers and the, the different stories it's covering. The sequels seem to focus on individual stories, and I got bored pretty quick. Yeah, the second book is pretty boring. You know, I, I read Dune. Dune is, is you know, you know my favorite book, I guess. You know, <laughs> and uh, I read it when I was I don't know eleven or twelve, and uh, yeah, I, I read the the whole book in just you know in a weekend. And, uh, I, I got on the sequels and I had, you know, I mean, maybe I, I guess it took me a year to write the second book, you know, because it was so, you know, it's just about politics and that kind of shit. And, uh, it just bored me, you know, like to death, but, uh, I eventually just, you know, got through it and, uh, I read everything, of course. And, uh, yeah, there's some good parts later on, you know, like it's not, it's not like the, you know, the first book, but, you know, there are some pretty good parts, like some pretty badass characters. Mm. You know, and, uh, and I guess it gets interesting. It's really too bad that, uh, Herbert died before finishing it. But I guess, you know, yeah. that's that. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Speaking of favorite books, I, I don't really, you know, I hardly think in terms of favorites, but I guess when I was young, I really liked, uh, what Jules Verne did, you know, what he wrote. Uh, really like, I guess you guys would call it, you know, Jules Verne or something like that. <laughs> that is what we call it, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I really like his stories, you know, I liked it a lot as a kid. And other than that, I guess, you know, when I was, same thing, I don't know, maybe 14, I read, uh, The Lord of the Ring and, uh, The Lord of the Rings, rather. And, um, yeah, I was really, you know, I really liked it a lot, uh, at the time. But I guess, uh, actually, as I grew older, I, you know, uh, fell a bit away from it. I read everything Tolkien wrote. But, uh, yeah, I just, you know, I'm not. I'm not such a big fan of it. The same goes for the Doctor, of course. I really love the first book, The Gunslinger. But you know, as time went went on, you know, and the series uh, concluded, uh, I can say it's one of my favorite books. Uh, you know, one thing I guess uh, what uh, William Gibson wrote, you know, including the Romancer. I like those stuff. I like Cyberpunk quite a bit, and I also love uh, Snow Crash from uh, Neil Stevenson. But uh, yeah, I guess. I That's, keep meaning to get into Snow Crash. I have it on my Kindle, and I've just yet to jump into it. Yeah, uh, uh, it's pretty good. I mean, for what it is, you know, it's yeah. uh, it's you know, many people consider it. I don't know if I can say many people, but like the death of uh, Cyberpunk, you know, like it's mm. uh, the final, you know, thing, the final story, and it's true. It's a, uh, it's very, you know, you know, Stevenson he does. You know, things like, you know, meta references, like the main character is called hero protagonist, you know? Oh my so, god. Yeah, it's a fucking, you know, and hero written, uh, like, you know, the Japanese name, you know, hero because, of course, yeah. and, and, uh, he's, uh, of course he's a samurai, you know, like, yeah. uh, but he's just, he's not a real samurai, he's just a wannabe, but all that kind of shit, you know, and, uh, it's, you know, despite the cheesiness, he manages to make it, you know, pretty fucking cool and, uh, and there's a lot of concept in it. Like, it's not like Gibson where he can, you know, I mean, a lot of things he wrote about ended up being the case, like, you know. Sure. Prophetic. And, uh, 
Yeah, it's not it's not exactly the same thing, but uh, yeah, it's it's pretty cool for what it is. It's really you know it's a good red. Yeah, Neuromancer blew me away. That's also something I read later later in life. Uh, everybody should read that. Is interested in sci-fi. Uh, it's so funny that Neuroman- Neuromancer was my first experience with cyberpunk, and my next book is going to be Snow Crash, and that's going to be the end of it, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, I, too. Gibson's written some really pretty cool stuff, like. Uh, he, he's done uh, quite a few, uh, trilogies, you know, and, yeah. uh, there's some about, uh, virtual idols, you know, mm-hmm. stuff from Japan. And, uh, you know, some stuff about, you know, like things we see nowadays, like, you know, 3D printing, you know, like where, you know, the thing where, oh, everybody can print stuff at home and such a thing. And he did, you know, he did stuff around that, but, you know, going further than that, of course, and the stuff about pattern recognition, you know, and which, you know, is, is kind of what, you know, Prism does for the NSA and all that kind of shit, you know, like, you know, he had these stories about a guy who just seen from patterns, you know, he can guess, predict even what people are going to do or guess stuff just from, you know, like the metadata, you know, they talk about, you know, in that, you know, NSA story, well, all those NSA stories. Mm-hmm. So all that kind of stuff, you know, he wrote about that, you know, like, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. And, I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty impressive. Like when you... When you see these stories and you know that, you know, some guy wrote about it in a novel, like, you know, 20 years ago, you're like, wow, you know, that guy, he, he really, you know, he was a yeah. visionary. I got the same impression while reading Neuromancer that I was really blown away by his uh, descriptions of technology. And that book was written in like 1980. Uh, where the concept of the Internet was like so such a distant memory, you know, or not memory, thought, you know, and he pretty much had a lot of the groundwork worked out in his head already. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, what's funny is kind of a hilarious barrier to me reading some of these, uh, the fathers of sci-fi and some of the, this titles that put the German, the idea of, you know, scientists and technologists is that we've seen, you know, uh, derivatives of their work so many times now that we're turning yeah. to, they were turning to the source material it almost feels, you know, inadvertently derivative in and of itself, even if it, even if it was the original. It's like, I feel like I've heard this story before. Oh yeah, everyone stole this shit dozens of times, you know. And they put new twists yeah. and wrinkles on it, so it feels even more like, oh, well, what right. a simplification. It's like, oh no. Right. <laughs> it's like, it invented it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one, one of the guy I like, I can't say, you know, like, I couldn't pinpoint a specific work, but, uh, Philip K. Dick, you know, uh, you know, he was, he's also a father of science fiction, I guess, but it's more about the psychological aspect of things and not really the technical one, you know, but he did some pretty, pretty crazy shit, you know, and he was, he was actually a pretty crazy guy. Yeah. Well, yeah, wasn't you know, he on, <laughs> he did his drugs. best work while, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was, he was, and he had, you know, you know, some mental problems. I mean, uh, I don't know exactly which, but, uh, yeah, he had, uh, he had quite a bit of trouble. But uh, yeah, he, he's a, he's pretty much a genius, and uh, his works are, are insanely good. So as I really recommend anybody who's interested in science fiction to read, you know, his entire body of works because he wrote many short stories and uh, a few, I mean, several novels. But uh, it's pretty Probably much seen them all as bad movies or, or movies of varying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Recently, there's a lot. There's a lot of this yeah. come out of his stuff. It's just yeah. been terrible, unfortunately. Well, yeah, pretty much everything that's been adapted. I mean, you know, Blade Runner is from, you know, one of his novels and uh, yeah. even Total Recall, everything. Uh, what, Paycheck what, is also one, I think. Yeah, and, and the one with um, Tom Cruise, you know, from Spielberg. Minority Report. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, many things, but uh, yeah, a few of them uh, are you know on the level of the originals. I've read um, the Androids Dream of Electric Sleep and yeah. uh, you and Ubik actually recently. I finished that maybe six months ago. Uh, his what? stuff always starts out promising and then goes fucking off the deep end, like just like takes this huge plunge into psychological yeah. <laughs> insanity towards the end. What What did you think of Ubik? Like I said, I, you know, I think he I actually read after it was done because I was fucking confused by the ending. Guess what? So was Philip K. Dick. He, <laughs> he himself professed to not quite understand what the ending was. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. You know, you you could try reading uh, the three stigmatas of Palmer and Rich. These are this one. This one's more accessible, and it, and it's pretty good also. He's it's pretty pretty good. But you know, Oscar uh, Darkly is also pretty good. They made a movie you know, from it. Yeah, but uh, it's. It's impossible to adapt as a movie, actually. So I, I don't know why that is. I didn't see it, but I, I heard, you know, what to say, mixed reviews. Sure. But I have no idea how anyone could, because it's it's just it's a kind of story you can only do, you know, in written form. So I have no idea how anybody could uh, adapt that. That's probably why it was uh, it wasn't that good. Yeah. Um, also, I think, think Keanu Reeves was attached to it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, yeah. Maybe, maybe he was like cool. half a cartoon or something. <laughs> right. <remember> the style. <laughs> Wow, I can't wait to see uh, the new movie he's got going, you know. Oh, yeah. 47 run-ins. Oh, yeah. I think it's pretty much it's gonna required. Be, it's going to be 47 times better than the movie Ronin. That's what <laughs> I think. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not sure that's still very good, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah well, difficult. It, it does have that, though. <laughs> um, it's almost like required that you are drunk when you watch that movie. From the, judging by the trailer, I, I can't imagine watching that movie and taking it seriously. Maybe, though. I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's all I had for books, really, just to talk about stuff. Um, we also had some member uh, Q&As, just two of them real quick. We're going to go through them, and then we'll see where we go from there. Uh, Grail asks... While the prototype was probably meant as a one-shot, how do you think Miura's intentions for the series changed between what we see in the prototype and the first episodes of Volume 1? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she specifically says uh, the difference in his attitude and appearance are notable, and also uh, he also has that crazy eye patch. What do you think were the reasons behind those shifts? Well, you know, the most obvious thing is that uh, the prototype was originally written as a shonen, you know, manga, which means it was aimed as uh, a younger public. But uh, as Mira wrote it, he, you know, how to say, he knew the story was shifting towards a, a silent story aimed at young adults. And so he modified the story in consequence with uh, a different type of humor and, uh, you know, different situations. And... Uh, I guess he refined the story, you know, like, you know, you could, you could say that the, the prototype is pretty much revamped and remixed into volume one, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, volume one through, through even, uh, you know, two and a half since it, you know, the, the count replaces uh, the guy from the, the bad guy, you know, the snake baron and, and the slug count are some kind of, you know, a mix of, you know, the main guy from the prototype. So I guess that's the main difference. Yeah. And as far as the eye patch, I mean, I, I don't really have a, a reason for why, really. I guess he just visually, one of my thoughts was like, when you add an eye patch to someone, it carries a certain like sick stigma to it. Like that person can almost get like you know typecast or stereotyped. Yeah. Whereas you don't without wanna... an eye patch, it could, it could be a, a wide number of things. You know, I don't know. I also think you don't want to cover up your like your main care, especially you know Mura is so big on you know expressions. 
carrying <laughs> scenes. You don't want to cover up your main character's face, you know, any right. part of it really. I mean, he already, I guess he kind of compromised by having him missing the eye, so, you know, you lose that, but. Well, there's also another thing is that at the end of the prototype, uh, he takes it yeah, actually leaves uh, the eye patch behind. So, you know, it's not like it's you know, it's it's likely you know he didn't intend to have the character you know keep that eye patch you know forever or anything like that. Also, was he even intending to expand it at that time? I mean, another thing that's different is, I mean, that might have been just you know it was sort of self-contained. Yeah, well, the thing is, uh, you know, uh, at the time, Mira was, uh, he had an interest in sci-fi, you know, as we know, he did, uh, you know, Futatabi and Noah, but, uh, you know, sci-fi was not, how to say, it's not what was, what editors were looking for at the time. So he did Berserk because, uh, well, it was another type of story, another genre. And, uh, it was picked Just up. selling out, doing what's hot, doing the, <laughs> the medieval, well, ultra violent, you know, <laughs> fantasy that everyone was clamoring for. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he did something else, which I'm not sure actually people were clamoring for, but yeah. uh, it, it, it was, it was a success. And, uh, and actually, like I said before, I think we can, we can see, uh, Noah's influence, uh, in the prototype. I mean, the character of Noah with his, he had an arm cannon as well, you know, and, uh, I think these little things can be seen in guts, but in any case, uh, yeah, it was picked up, it got prizes and such. And so I guess, well, you know, he decided to make us, to make a series out of it. The way I always thought about it was maybe he didn't have direct intentions to continue the story that he set out to do in the prototype, but he he had already had that story floating around in his head and he's developing it. And the one shot was just that a one shot. And then maybe he would, you know, bring the germ of that story to something else. I never thought like a one shot issue two in that exact world was going to happen, you know, but. Yeah, know. well, you know, it's, it's just this kind of thing where, you know, you do a story and uh, if it's picked up and the guys like you and I guess they told him they liked it and wanted more of it and so yeah. he just produced it. Yeah, sure. And uh, and uh, instead of just elaborating on it, he, start, he decided to start to start over, you know, do a new story which corresponded more to actually what he felt, you know, the story, you know, deserved or was going for. Mm-hmm. Less shonen and more more adult in tone, you know that kind of stuff. Less uh, you killed my mother. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the character design of the girl always threw me off in the prototype. Like she has Griffith's hair, and it just looks a little weird knowing that he cre- created a character that's like that. But I don't know. I I don't. <laughs> I don't think the, is that proto Griff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she she evolved to become Griffith. You know, she's just a little girl with blonde hair. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in Prototype Part 2, the little girl was going to say... No, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this girl uh, became... Uh, how to say it? Theresia, oh, you that, know? Oh, yeah. Well, well actually, she kind of became a combination of both. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I was... At first, I was going to say Colette, and then uh, I, I figured, you know, Theresia. But yeah, it's a combination of the two, actually. Same for the bad guy, you know? Yeah. Uh, the next question comes from Johnny Apples. He asks, <clears throat> once they are finished with the Berserk movie adaptations, oh. how would you think, how do you, how would you feel about Studio 4C taking on Gigantomachia next? Uh, oh first, man. I mean, what, do you, what, what the hell do you think? I mean, it would not be great. Yeah. Johnny uh, Trolls. Is, is this, is this a trick question? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard, it's really weird to even be thinking about this, 
you know, two issue series now being adapted into a movie. I mean, I don't have the sentimental attachment to it where it would hurt me. So, yeah. you know, go ahead. <laughs> you can sure. do it. Proceed. I, I might be uh, by the end of the series run though. I mean, you know, even though it will be only one volume, I'm pretty sure they could still fuck it up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I mean, we, you know what? This two uh, episode wrestling match isn't long enough. <laughs> we need it to be like. <laughs> we'll get into that. And uh, he also asks when uh, the Giganto Machia's YA run is complete and all of its chapters are bound. Do you think they could include Mira's two earlier sci-fi works, Hutatabi and Noah? Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think it's likely. These early works, uh, you know, I don't think Mira is necessarily very proud of them, you know, because he's evolved so much since then. And uh, I'm not sure he would want them to be republished. Like, you know, I'm not saying yeah. he would be ashamed of them or anything like that. But, you know, knowing him, you know, like, you know. Think, I think it's ready for, you know, it was never. Yeah. yeah. It was never at that level of quality that, you know, he's at. Mm-hmm. Or that you yeah. reach to. I mean, you know, it's sort of, it's like with music or anything else where it's like some things, you know, they're just not at that level and the artists have moved on. Yeah. And, and it also, I mean, including it in, uh, in Giganto Marquez, uh, you know, Tanko Bond would, would mean, uh, it would be too big, you know, like it, it would be in terms of pages. I don't think it would fit. So it's also, uh, logistically, uh, I just don't think it's feasible. How do you think this works in terms of the industry? For uh, Futatabi and Noah in particular, and also the Berserk prototype, are these basically like TV pilots? And he picks up the one that you know gets the most reception, or he feels the most strongly about, and then proceeds with the series. Or do you think these were merely the exploratory kind of experiments for him? Well, you know, at the time, another thing I didn't mention is that you know these were published in specific magazines, which mm-hmm. weren't uh, Animal uh, House, and so you know, I'm not sure you know they even could publish them that they have the rights or anything like that. So the thing is. You know, like young authors, they just, you know, they submit, uh, short works and, uh, you know, to be noticed, to be paid for them. Like that's how you start. You can't just, you know, come in with a series. Well, sure. Yeah. Being a nobody and, uh, that just works. So, or I guess you could, but you know, you have to have a pretty strong pitch. So I guess at the time, Mural did these kind of things and, uh, yeah, well, that just, that just worked. Uh, his two stories were published. Uh, you know, Futatabi and Noah, but I guess they, you know, there wasn't enough interest to make a series out of it. And uh, with Berserk, well, I, I think he got a proposal and just, you yeah. know, ran with it. Yeah. If he really cared, he could probably buy the rights to them. Because, I mean, one thing that's neat about, you know, something where you really do need the creator to literally create every part of it is it's not like a thing where, well, we own the rights, we're going to make our own version, you know, because who would care? It's like, yeah, if he's not doing it, you know, they can't be like, we're going to get some other hack to to continue Mira's story because he's big at this, you know, no one who's a fan of his work would, you know, follow that you know, trained. So. Well, the thing is, uh, I also think like, you know, for Berserk, for example, I'm pretty sure he's got the rights and, uh, like he's the one who decides, you know, who's got the yeah. final work and everything. But for these earlier walks, since they were one shot and such, I- I'm not sure. Like, I'm not sure he's even got the, you know, how to say, the original, you know, uh, drawings that uh, could be scanned or, you know, yeah. anything like that to, to be printed in a high enough quality. So, <clears throat> yeah. Oh, it makes me think why he even bothered including the prototype in volume 14, you know, that being the case, well, since I mean, it was such an old thing. 
that, that was pre- I'm pretty sure that was uh, something from the editor, you know, like to fill up to fill up the volume or something like yeah. that. Well, well I'm, I'm because, sh- I mean, it was so successful that it like that you know justifies it just for like oh people would be interested in this. Sure, I guess I mean the t- the timing of it. Uh, just kind of, I mean, it feels sort of randomly Random. spaced. Yeah, fourteen. You know, thinking about it, uh, I wonder when. Let me let me Did check. You take a when. break or something. Let me check when the volume. Yeah, because you know the thing is, they could have wanted to release volume fourteen quickly because uh, the TV series uh, was running at the time. You know. Oh, there we go. That's, and, that's and what so, I was looking for. Was some kind of yeah, conflation of these things. Yeah, and and so people who would be interested in it might, you know, there might have been a timing issue. Well, like they said, okay, well, we'll take what we've got and uh, release it right away or something like that. I don't know, maybe not, but uh, it might have been the case. Uh, it's, it's right on schedule, six months apart. Yeah, so that's that's why I've been thinking that. But I don't know if the timing is exact or not. Maybe it was not that, I don't know, but uh, it might have played a role. Yeah. Not to mention that, uh, you know, uh, in the volume previous to that, uh, volume 13, uh, an episode had been removed, you know, episode 83. Right. So I guess that one episode less in advance or something like that. So it might have also played a role, you know, as far as how many episodes they had in advance. That's true. Yeah. Actually, yeah, there 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 is some kind of weird math going on between thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen because fifteen comes out four months after fourteen, which is an oddball. Normally, it's six months, but yeah, whatever. It's all weird. That whole section is, is strange. But uh, that's just minutia. <clears throat> We're going to end the show here, guys. Thanks for writing in, and thanks for keeping on listening to the Skullcast. We'll be back next time there is an issue. So thanks again. Mm-hmm.